This man's a dogmatician. He's not a historian. Yo, yo, yo. How's everybody going? Oh, my gosh. What up? This is horrible. Look how close this is to our faces. There we go. Yeah, I, love being, I love being close to my homies. How are you doing? <laughs> we have Corey. Corey's up? wife. The other Paul. And Woo! me. Yeah, you're live on YouTube right now, too. Okay, and I'm currently rushing to delete the last stream because we might have gotten into a little bit of trouble. Hey, so, download it first. You private it. You don't delete it. No, no, no. I have it downloaded on StreamYard. Okay. Paul, you're going to ask something. What's up? You see, you were going to ask something, and then Christian rudely played the intro. Yes, I'm terribly to sorry. I was going to ask you, how many other base, like, major fit Christian figures do you know that I could potentially yank as an interview person? Like, fit? Fit um, and Christian? Like, either, either fit or not, but as long as they're, like, a base Christian. Y'all talk, talk amongst yourselves. That I know personally. So, like, you know Milo. Do you know any others? Mm, no, not really. Mm, fair enough. Well, hello, hello, Mrs. Corey. I had uh, Martin Shkreli, but he's in jail. Yeah, Martin Shkreli. That's freaking nuts. Yeah. She's hang just on, eating pizza. I've got a message for her because she can't hear. He's got a message for you. Oh, no. Please be nice. I'm not like a mean person. Give me pizza. Oh, okay. I'm like scared that people are going to be rude. No. We're, this is a Christian YouTube channel. Yeah, this is a wholesome Christian. Well, <laughs> wholesome until last stream, but yeah. The real question, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Well, then you're not going to like my pizza. <laughs> He's Australian. Mm. Have you tried pineapple on your pizza, though? I have tried pineapple. Can you, can yes. you tell that? I have yes. tried pineapple, and I yes, hate pineapple. Yes, he has. Well, I feel bad. <sighs> What's it like in Australia right now? What's it like in Australia right now? He's not vaccinated, so he has to go to jail if he goes outside. So Really? <laughs> No, not like that. We're mostly in in my state of New South Wales. We're mostly we're pretty much totally open, but the government still requires QR codes and masks inside places. But most places just don't even enforce it. So we're pretty good in my state. Okay, makes sense. Okay, so somebody send me the Beza Sodomite poem, and we'll get right on. I thought you would have had that, bro. (laughs) Oh wait, yeah, Alex is like said link. I need the link. You posted it in the last chat. Okay, I'll post in that um, the last chat doesn't exist anymore. That video never happened. Okay. I only have one copy saved for myself to laugh at in the future, but uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay. That's the redacted stream. <laughs> the redacted. <laughs> Would you be willing to upload it to Gab TV? Uh, or, or do you, or you just generally concerned for? You your should career? probably not. I just save the good parts. 
Fair enough. Save the good. Yeah. So, so on the other side of the wall. Yeah. Because I was wondering whether it was you just wanted to private it. Because I would private it for the sake of your YouTube, but I'm also wondering um, if you wanted to private for your your reputation as well. I'll, I'll be eating food for a lot of this. I'll be I'll be uh, my camera off. I'm gonna be eating my dinner, uh, but I'll be here. Okay. Let's. I actually have to go in like 30 minutes, so we can just go over the base of sodomite poem, and then off the yeah, leave. Like right now. Uh, yeah. Okay. I know Corey had some questions to me that I interrupted, so I have to wait for that too. Okay. Why can't I? Why can't I? Why can't I find this? Because you're. It's in the Discord. Ew! The oh. kids. Ew! Yeah. You're just jealous. Bro, what are you talking about? I'm literally, I'm married. Yeah. <laughs> nah, bro. I just don't like them. <laughs> I too know about postpartum living. Yeah. <laughs> Let's turn your mic down, dude. You're like 500 time. right now. Who? You. Really? <laughs> Talk again. Check one, two. It's still super loud, but I'm here. I can turn this down. down. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I turned you down to 50 already. I fixed it. Okay. Yeah, you sound fine. Okay. Let's. Where would I find? Just uh, don't I... make any loud noises or sudden movements. He's or got a bomb rig. Okay. How do I find my uh... Tato G? Alex, asks, wasn't What's it up? Swingly that wrote you? Erotic... How old are you? Uh, I'm 18. I'll be 19. Uh, I was like, you look okay, spry good. and athletic. You play I was any about sports? To say, I was like, did I have no. a minor in my chat? No, I do not play. I do not. Play you don't sports. play sports. You ever play basketball? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody could play? probably. You could probably be like nobody could guard you. You're too explosive. It's <laughs> 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 God. Uh, <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Before COVID, I played basketball. Actually. Are, did you go to public school or what? Public school. Yeah. Ew. That's crazy. Okay, well, I can't, I can't find. Oh, this might be a very, very uh, short stream because I can't find the Beza poem. That's no, it's in the. Is it? is it not in the PDF? No. I can't find the PDF. Are oh, do people do it. people know about you? Like that you went to school with? Yeah. Yeah. They like. Hey, you, went to school, you went to school, dude. Hang on, I've got it. I've got it. I'll send it to you. Are you like privately a Muslim? Like, are are you out there? Like, nah, in your I'm public open. I'm pretty open about it. There's nothing to really be private about. Well, Where'd you send it? Yeah. I'm sending it to know. you. People would act Discord, weird on the Discord server on the. I think it. Chat. I think it takes a lot of balls. <laughs> right, on the cojones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd say it's um, it's probably just as hard Where'd as being an actual it? Christian on the Discord on the Discord servers casual chat. <laughs> AJ says Milton Groper. <clears throat> yep. Do you actually go to like a mosque? Like, do you know, like, yeah, yeah. Do, how do you yeah. just like email them and show up, or do you just like walk in one day? Um, I emailed them in advance, yeah. But I'd I'd already considered, like, I'd already converted by the time I went there because the mosque I go to, I live in a pretty small town that's like forty five minutes away from Columbus, so I, I don't go every every week. But are you in go. Ohio right now? Yeah, I'm in Ohio. Yeah, east or west? Uh, central. Okay. I thought you, I thought you said, uh, are you in Al Qaeda, not Ohio? <laughs> <laughs> I used to go to Columbus every year for the Arnold Classic. 
Ah, so they're like a distinct Shia mosque, I assume. Mm -hmm. Dude, there's a mosque being built on my street. Like literally two red lights away, there's a mosque being built. And then there's a halal butcher literally right. Like I can smell it. Yeah. We should get some halal meat sometime, bro. It's tasty. I don't know, man. I see the goats outside. (laughs) But we, we, Sunnis and Shias actually pray differently. There's different, um, like a different way of going about it. Okay, let's get to the. I mean, if you guys wanted to, I can just leave when I need to leave. If you guys wanted to talk afterwards, I'll leave when you leave because I'm going to do some stuff as well. Okay. I'm just eating. I'm just eating my dinner. So you can just stay on here and eat your dinner. She, Alex, <laughs> make make like <laughs> ISIS my, propaganda. The ASMR dinner eating stream. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If I, what if I sleep on your stream? What if I just like, go to sleep and keep your That's stream fine. running? <laughs> I, I've slept during my streams before. <laughs> Theodore de Beze's affection for Candita and Odar Bert. Candida Odubea. Yeah. Candida is gone. Beze, why are you staying? Odbear is gone. Why are you staying? Paris holds your loves. Or or Orleans has your delights. And you are staying on in Vesle, far from dear Candina and your loves, and your delights in dear Aubert. Then farewell, Vesle, and farewell, father, my brothers, for I can do without Vesle, without father and these and those, but not without dear Candida and dear Aubert. But I ask, which one should I prefer? Which one should I see first? Could I prefer someone to you, Candida? Could I prefer someone to you, Albert? What if I cut myself in two parts? Of which one would you see, Candida? The one would run towards Albert. But Candida is so possessive, I know, that she desires to have the entire baiser. And Albert is so desire of his baiser that he burns to enjoy <laughs> Beza entirely. <laughs> Thus I embrace now him and now her, desiring to see each other wholly, entirely to enjoy each one singly. But I have to set one over the other. Oh, all too cruel necessity. But if it must be one, I give preference to you, Aldbear, that if Candida should complain, what then? She'll be silent through a kiss that is deep. The funniest part about that is the guy had the, the balls to write it in first person. that is hilarious yeah he went first person i don't think i'm smart enough to think this is funny (laughs) this is like old-fashioned humor it's not like the modern people it's more of a nuance it takes time to develop it's just more of a it's 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 literally showing when you look at the whole thing he's preferring the love of a guy to that of a woman that's the insult yeah. Sodomy and popetry. Popetry. It's more of a comment. Is this a new orthochog moment? Popetry. Orthochog church and submit to popetry. <laughs> Is this another translation? Oh, Don the Two's dropping. French. Oh, oh there's oh. two people just left. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, wait, there's like other courts and stuff. Oh, dang. Yeah, that wasn't the only one. 
This oh. nerd is crazy. I mean, I am halal. so interested in uh, more Muslim talks. This is so interesting. I'm eating halal chili right now. This is crazy. Big chili fan. Myself. You have to tell your mom, like, Mommy, I need it to be halal. Like, Byzantine Scotus said to join. Oh, Biz Scotus can join? We might have to hijack Byzantine Scotus' stream again. Bro, Biz... No, I'll let Biz... Oh, there you go. Tato JL has a different perspective. Hey. Hey. Tato JL has a different perspective. He says, based Beza rejecting females and accepting the embrace of his homie. <laughs> and Copo says poetry versus versus orthochog debate. <laughs> I saw I saw some meme a while ago. It was like the soy boy, like modern gay, like being gay because it's liberal, and then the Chad Greek being gay because you hate women. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another one. Um, the life of Beza. I can affirm as absolutely true that no poet so lascivious, so absolutely shameless and detestable has ever existed who has published what exceeds the bounds of modesty so far or has so much indulged himself in his writing as to put on paper a turpitude of the kind Beza did in his book of epigrams about Candida. Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, Beza wrote that? Wait, what? No way. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, uh, no way. Hold up. You know what? So, okay. So, now, okay. So, it's probably a similar situation to like David and Jonathan, where, um, where David said after Jonathan's death that your love was better than that of a woman. But that's because it's the, it's the love between homies. Reformed cope, reformed cope, reformed cope. Reformed cope. <laughs> well, this, is our, this is your Bible, too, buds. We're in the same boat. <laughs> oh, yeah. But at least I said, oh, I'll silence her with a kiss and then go with the homies. Wait, this might actually be a based poem. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It actually is a based poem. That's the context. If it actually is Beza who wrote that, he's saying, I prefer a homie. There's nothing, love, there's not nothing on it. There's nothing about it on Wikipedia. And you know, if he was gay, it would be like, like, it would be like three paragraphs about it on Wikipedia. So it can't no, be like, true. Yeah, probably. Except that Wikipedia is purposely run by people trying to attack the Catholic Church. So one of the chief enemies, like Theodore Beza, they wouldn't include him being gay. Oh, true, 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 it's true. A, they, yeah. it's, a, it's a big conspiracy. It so, so, it, so it reads on, and particularly in the poem where he reveals his pain to be for so long miserably exiled with his parents in Vézelay, away from his loves and delights. That is how the debauch puts it. <laughs> hey, hey, go back, go back, go back. What are you doing? Christian, do you want to write a few paragraphs on Beza's page about how he's gay with me, and then that will never get taken <laughs> down from Wikipedia ever? <laughs> yes, yes. The not gay Christian hero. Okay. Um, take Theodore Beza. Scandalous preference for a male lover. Oh my gosh. He, this is actually written by him. <laughs> oh my god. Whoa. Gay Beza. Gay Beza. actually saying he's gay. Oh look, he likes to he 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 appreciates his homie. Therefore, he wants to have some butt fun with him. Yeah, classic Protestant. Not being able to accept it, that it, that their that their founders it, are gay. Classic. See, to Protestant. me, it's more that he's Protestant, so I assume he's gay. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> that's kind of a that's a homosexual take right there. What? Let's bring up the pornocracy, shall we? <laughs> Wait, what? Weren't most of those popes, though, having um, illicit relationships with women, Cope. at least? Cope. 
No, when we looked on the list of sexually active popes, the one oh, that sure was as long. It was yeah, it was. Yep. There was a series of Greek popes. That probably explains okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> good call. Okay, here's, good, good call. Okay, here's the, here's the context as interpreted by this author on medium.com. He notes a detail that significantly complicates the plot. The deep kiss that Beza gives Candida is erotically loaded. He's Ooh. saying he'll continue having sex with his girlfriend to cover up his preference for his boyfriend. That is some Ace of Jesus right there. Okay, at least I'm not writing gay poems. Just admit, just admit your forefathers were gay, okay. Paul. Schleider writes, the assumption is not only that Albert has no reason to be concerned, but that on the contrary, he should feel gratified that his erotic and possibly sexual relationship with the speaker is of a different order. Mm. Hey, Christian Mario's in the chat. What's up, Christian Mario? Nice. Join Mario. Join oh. us. StreamYard links above. It's a me. Bro, she I'm eating chips <laughs> and now I don't want to eat. <laughs> 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 oh, God. <laughs> sorry, Milan. Actually, we're kind of not sorry. This was like kind of the on the agenda today. So, oh, Calvin was also gay. Oh, and here he, we go. And he becomes a full-on Protestant, cultivating a warm personal bond with John Calvin. I would not be a man if I did not return his love, who loves me more than a brother and reveres me as a father, as Calvin writes of Beza. For I saw in him a man whose lovely spirit, noble, pure manners, and open-mindedness. Endeared him to open mind. That's the real. That's the real. You don't. Open well, what is it, Christian? You don't. You don't. You don't give compliments like this to your homies. What are you? Are you a loner? <laughs> I bet. I bet you don't kiss your homies goodnight, eh? <laughs> okay. Okay, Bez This says Christian Bezos was gay, but it does say that you he was are, a sodomite. Uh, you're you're um you're you're doxing your emails right now, by the way, buddy. Don't care. <laughs> Just thought I'd tell you. All right, let's gonna... see. Let's let's put up on all the spam lists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna sign up his email to like every to like newgrounds. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Every every newsletter ever. Yeah. Okay, so mm -hmm. let's finish this. Turpitude of the kind Beza did in his poem of epigrams about Candida, and particularly in the poem where he reveals his pain to be for so long miserably exiled with his parents in Vesley, away from his loves and delights. Although through Albert, certainly, and through Candida, that it may not seem that I have made up such an offense, I have though it thought it proper to copy this most effeminate <laughs> epigram. Beza. Here we go. Effeminate Beza. <laughs> this is this is getting deeper. The lore, the see, lore is real in this one. See, I feel like this is more just like Renaissance stuff rubbing off on him, but that's probably worse than if he was actually gay. So, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever seen that one? That one like really famous Orthodox tweet where he's like, where like they're trying to argue that like the Renaissance art and the Sistine Chapel is pornography or something. Oh yeah. Yeah, it, isn't that um? So the guy who made that tweet, what's his name? Um, like Zoomer Theosis. He's actually 14 years old. He said in another tweet, and then he oh. made another tweet where he talked about how you shouldn't do anything with um a girlfriend that you wouldn't do with your sister. Was the wife included? 
No, no, oh. he said that. He said that having that seeing your wife naked was like a. Oh, he said yeah, seeing your wife naked is a sin. Yeah, he said that's his private parts are gross. Was his explanation? I agree with him. Based. Based. <laughs> okay. I don't see any other ones that aren't against the can, Holy See. Can we get Zoomer Theosis on here? Gosh. Face <laughs> yeah, face reveal. Yeah, I want I want a face reveal for Zoomer Theosis. Apparently, he's also Greek. So that's another issue we have to take into account. Yeah, I uh, can that. speak English. We got Copo on here. Is he that cradle? Is he cradle? Yeah, I think he said he was cradle. But I doubt he's a convert at 14. So. No. Well, no, no, you'd be surprised. Uh, the internet. That's true. You'd be surprised. Yeah. How old were you when on... you converted Shia, Alex? To orthodoxy? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh. To uh, Yeah, to orthodoxy, I guess. To orthodoxy, I would have been. Let me think. Let me do the math. Uh, 16 or 15? Okay. Yeah, I, I was 16 when I started looking into it online, and uh, 17 is the first time I attended a church. That's yeah. so crazy, man. When I was 16 and 17, I was playing World of Warcraft and skateboarding. <laughs> I didn't get into anything until I was like 25, See, 26. I was just reading something earlier today about how the, for, the first Portuguese translation of the Bible was made by a 14 year old. <laughs> <laughs> that Strange rules. Portuguese. <laughs> so if you if you ever feel like you haven't accomplished much with your life, know that fourteen year olds used to translate the entire Bible. You know that you know I sent you that document by um Ayatollah Al Sistani regarding his meeting with the Pope Christian. Yeah. So when he started becoming like studying in like religious seminary, he was fourteen. He moved from Iran to Iraq and has since then been studying in this in seminary. For uh, since he was now he's ninety two years old. So yeah, his uh, his wives are fourteen as well. <laughs> he has one wife. He has one wife, I think, and I think his one wife is his age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so he's been studying for like seventy eight years, technically, or something like that. Something crazy. Although now he's more of a teacher than a student, but you know, you get the idea. He's been at the seminary for that long. Dang! So Beza actually just posted cringe. What did he say? That he's gay. What, just all of this? Okay, it's enough. there's another additional quote. No, he's just gay. I think this is the conclusion here, that he's yeah. just gay. Okay, there's another quote where he's like, and here also he said, I'm gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Theodore Beza, FYI. The real I'm question we have to see, was he against homosexuality? Because that Wikipedia will say that that means it was, he was actually a repressed homosexual. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That that's the argument for Elquin. That's funny. I just got fired. I just got followed <laughs> by uh by a by a person on Twitter. <laughs> it's really funny when like um, because I, I I always think it must be confusing when I follow people on Twitter and they see that I'm not a Christian, so they must be like, why is this guy following me? But then I, because I get that exact same feeling when like some like random Eastern Orthodox person follows me, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of you know, some eclectic interest, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing, Christian? You're just stone faced. Um, You're back at the Easter Island I'm, face. I'm fighting people on Twitter right now. You're back at the Easter <laughs> Island face right now. Oh, Alex, I have to let you know that unfortunately you have now given me my most disliked video because I think I got some bad <laughs> trads mad that I had a Muslim on. Well, oh, if you no. guys watch the stream, I got a comment that I responded to during the stream of someone telling me I shouldn't platform this demonic filth. 
Yeah, infidels, I think, was the word he said. Okay. Infidels. You shouldn't have I got somebody. Infidels. I got somebody else who um got really mad at me that I had someone on with a mask, and I started going on a whole rant yeah. about how <laughs> yeah, George, you're like um, respiratory <laughs> system. And I ended up blocking him because he got like he kept calling me an idiot for having someone on it with a um mask. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that. That's so funny. I well, know. if I wear if I wear the like if I pull this down and wear it over my face, it looks like I'm a like Taliban member. It's a lot less. It's a lot way. It's a way See, more intimidating. I, I felt. Can we get your take on the Taliban? Are they based? Um, the P- Taliban are. Oh, I've said this before, but the Taliban are like they're better than the old Afghani government, just as a purely political, uh, like metric. But a government like them is considered inappropriate in Shiism. Okay. Hmm. There you go. I watched some like Vice documentary that was probably yeah. super cringe of them going around talking to Afghan people. Did they have the people. interview? Did they have what? the interview where like the lady talks to like the the yeah. leader of the Taliban? Okay. Yeah. The be- the yeah. best clip in the whole documentary though is this one part where she tries to talk to this like religious leader and he says he'll talk to her but she won't he won't look at her the entire time <laughs> and he looks at the translator <laughs> the entire time he sits like in the room with like his back facing to her. Oh, Christian's gone. Gone. I'll be back I'll in like back. 15 minutes. Gotta okay. Gotta do evening prayer with the wife. All right, cool. What a but based yeah. husband. Uh, I'm probably about to hit it too because I'm gonna go verify some documents to apply oh, for a job. This goofball. <sighs> I know, right? Looking you almost work. scarfed down that entire vape in this one stream. I feel like. Yeah. The thing is meant to be. This one's meant to be around 15 to 1800 puffs or something, but. I feel like I've gone at it that hard. It's probably almost empty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you hit the one. You hit a, You hit the one at the beginning. It's probably like two hundred puffs in of itself. <laughs> Alex, Alex, why, why, why are we not allowed to have mustaches in Islam? Uh, you're actually, it's, you're allowed to. Um, okay. There's a reason why it's so. There's, a, there's kind of a difference of opinion. Some the Sunnis tend to say it's makruh, which means like disapprove like it's just not recommended but you're allowed to do it it's just like you shouldn't do it right is a difference in the ruling there and that's because um they have reports that the the pagans in arabia used to wear used to have their beards that way and that they don't want to be like like there's a tradition of like not being confused with the pagans hmm. of, ha- of having a mustache of just having a mustache so they that's shave the nice. mustache okay. yeah hmm. and All she right. is him it doesn't matter well gents it was a good day today, especially the uh, redacted stream earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah. We'll catch you yeah. boys next. Hey, I'm about to I'm about to get my base department streams on my channel happening soon, so I'll, I'll keep you guys in the loop on that. All right, sounds right. good. See you. See ya. Yeah, well, I'm very man. I'm very interested. Yeah, yeah, Corey. I don't think we've met before. What's uh, up, bro? Nice to meet you. I yeah. saw I saw you on Pints with Aquinas. Oh, nice. So, so I'm from like Pittsburgh, right outside of Steubenville. Okay, I, yeah. But I, uh, I moved to Florida to go to college Based. with Christian. So I went to college with Christian, and then that's where we met. And okay. we, bo- we both left after I was going to an Orthodox church. He ended up becoming Catholic. Okay, you know that is whole that, story. Is, is that a prayer rope you have on you there? Yeah. It's good, yeah. yeah. I've been trying to get back into praying the Jesus prayer recently. It's I used amazing. to have a really good habit of it, and I fell out of it. And I'm trying to get back in. Literally changed my life. It literally yeah. is like it's like default now. Anytime I take a deep breath, it just happens. Yeah, it's it's that, crazy. I, I was like that for a while. I think that the whole pandemic lockdown stuff it really messed up my whole funk with just my spirituality and everything. Yeah, and I really I got really lazy for a while. So I'm trying to take Lent this year seriously and you know get back on track. Yeah, so I never actually 
became orthodox. I'm still technically okay. a, a Presbyterian, so, okay. but I definitely still use it. I think it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. If you're a Presbyterian, are you aware of some of the Federal Vision guys? I know who they are. Okay. Because yeah, they've been very influential on me, especially James Jordan and Peter Lightheart. Yeah. We talked about Peter Lightheart last stream we had. You, I think you mentioned a book of his. Yeah, yeah. Delivered from the Elements of This World. I think it's one of his best books. Yeah, yeah. It's on the Atonement. Um, right. But it's just a really good book at doing, like, I think, good theology where he looks both at the Bible, uh, but, like, looks at the whole Bible, you know, not just, like, what does St. Paul say or what do the Gospels say? What does the Old Testament say? He tries to bring it all together and show it's all giving one story just in different languages and different types of books about what God is doing in history. And then he also then interacts with the tradition as well. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a shame that a lot of them got caught up in a lot of like the uh, what's the like super conservative side of politics to where like, they're all just anti-lib try and be as like abrasive mm -hmm. as possible. Uh, and they like went that route. They, a lot of them sort of moved away from that from what I can tell. I know, um, Peter Lightheart, he actually had a whole discussion on Theopolis, the website he runs, about immigration. He actually holds like pretty liberal views on immigration. This would be considered oh, yeah. like liberal nowadays. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think when there was the whole theonomy crowd, especially, but quite a number of them moved away from that. Are you aware of um, like R.J. Rushduni and Gary North and those Presbyterians? I don't think I know who they are. Okay, so R.J. Rushduni was basically this guy. Do you know Cornelius Van Til? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, he's yeah. he was very influenced by Van Til, and he thought that one of the presuppositions that had to be gotten rid of was natural law, and he thought that the only legitimate law is biblical law. So he basically applied an extreme sola scriptura to the government and thought that the government could only put in like literally the laws of Moses as the only legitimate civil law, and argued that Jesus wow. hadn't abrogated them. And so wow. he argued, and there was. Now, one of his, That's like extreme messianic Judaism. Yeah. Now, one of his disciples was Gary North. So Gary North actually married his daughter, but then the two of them never spoke for a while, at, on even all the way up till Rushduni's death, because they had a small disagreement about how to interpret the typology of the blood on Passover. Um, but anyways, Gary North also had studied under Ludwig von Mises. So Gary North wanted to synthesize like extreme Austrian economics with the Bible as well. He actually wrote a commentary on every single book of the Bible, arguing that they all teach Austrian economics dogmatically. And his wow. argument was that there's no biblical laws on the economy that are not specific to ancient Israel. So they can't be applied now. And so we argued that that meant extreme anarcho-capitalism. Like there was nothing in the Bible that taught like if the government could build roads. So we argued that there's no authority for the government to build roads, which oh, means they all crazy. have to be privatized um, and extreme stuff like that. And yeah, they're a very interesting crowd. Gary North even wrote a paper on um, arguing that stoning is required. Like that not only any type of death penalty, because R.J. Rush Jr. thought it was any type of death penalty was okay. But he argued specifically that God commands stoning in specific as the means of execution. And he wrote a whole paper arguing why that is. What would be um, like his interpretation of like Romans 13? What would he say about Romans 13? He, he would say that the sword, he probably would take the sword there. Sometimes they can use the sword specifically, but it probably, he would argue, I have to look at his commentary, he has written a commentary on the entire Bible. Um, yeah. He'd probably talk about how that refers to the government having authority, but he would argue they have to then follow God's laws, which would be the laws of Moses.
Um, interestingly, though, because of his economic views, he hangs out in all these libertarian circles. So he's like a, a fellow at the Mises Institute. He worked on Ron Paul's campaign. He actually wrote a number of Ron Paul's speeches. And he Ron married Paul his daughter? Yeah. He, he married Rashtuni's, R.J. Rashtuni's daughter. Oh, R.J. Rashtuni is like the one who started this whole movement. I um, thought you he, meant he married his own daughter. Oh, no, no not his own daughter. That's what you said, too. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. no, no, he married R.J. Rashtuni's daughter, which is funny that him and Rashtuni then had the falling out over like a very minor issue of typology. That's funny. Dude, I don't know. Yeah, I'm still technically a Presbyterian, even though, you know. <laughs> I hold to like perpetual virginity of Mary. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary is the second ark. Yeah. Jesus prayer rope. Yeah. Uh, I affirm images. What okay. else do I got going on here? It's a, yeah, I just, I know like a weird amount about these weird Presbyterian circles just because I found a few of their books very edifying, which caused me to read a whole bunch more of their books. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of biblical symbolism, some of the stuff being produced today by people like Peter Lightheart and other Presbyterians is excellent. Um, also mentioned Alistair Roberts, who's um, Anglican, but he hangs out in a lot of those circles. Um, he just he over the course of the last year did Bible commentary every single day on the lectionary from the Book of Common Prayer every morning and evening on the Old and New Testament, which ended up being the entire Bible. So now he's compiling them and is putting up an audio commentary on the entire Bible. And I'm, I'm listening through Genesis right now. Is Genesis? Uh, it's nine hours. I'm about two hours in, but it's excellent. He goes a lot into the literary details of the story and focuses on those. That's kind of secular. <laughs> no, it, it's but it's not literary in the sense that he rejects that it's literal. He he's a young earth creationist, affirms it's all literal. Oh, okay, he, based. He he's he's actually digging into typology, but he approaches typology from a very um, what is it? Literary perspective. Oh, P- Piliocrat's in the chat. Go, Piliocrat. Uh, once Christian comes back, um, you should hop in the stream. Who's if he's cool with that. Who's Paleocrat? He's in the comments. Thing. He's a cool guy. Jeremiah Bannister. He's a cool guy. So, what do you think oh. about the flat Earth? Flat Earth. I are you a flat earther from your thing? I I had a stint with it, and I <laughs> and I and I don't deny it now. But mm. I wouldn't say like one hundred percent. I'm serious yeah. about it, but at the same time, I could see how yeah. like. See, I'm definitely not a flat earther, but I also think that a lot of people unfairly dismiss it without bothering to look at their arguments first. I don't think the arguments hold up, but I think they're actually more intelligent than most people give credit to. Um, But I'm a complete kook. Like, I'm a creationist. I'm actually debating Jimmy Aiken on that on Friday. That's what I was going to ask, but Dave, that was not actually. How are you a kook by being a creationist? Let, I mean, I'm, I'm not a kook, but that's what they declared. Even by some of the creationists, I'm probably a kook because I will argue about how we have to integrate holomorphism into our views of physics. So that's based. I agree. Yeah. Like, that's why my big issue with like radiometric dating is how can we know the, that there's a consistent rate of decay always if we haven't yet reconciled? I mean, clearly we're dealing with something above the level of substantial form when we're looking at molecules and something below the level of substantial form when we're looking at something like um, subatomic particles. So until we can reconcile those two entirely with hylomorphism, I don't think we can approach a, a definitive answer on you, whether radiometric decay is consistent it's i mean you've, there's been radiometric dating on like snail shells that have shown a two-year-old snail being fifty thousand years old so yeah. obviously well, it's not and the, 
The big issue actually is all these super old rocks, they almost all have carbon 14, which has a half life of I think about the 6,000 years or so. And so, yeah, go figure. Oh. It shouldn't be around if it's more than like 50,000 years. Yeah. yeah. Do you th- what do you, do you think Jimmy Aiken's going to take more of a scientific argument or a scriptural argument? I'm just curious. So I listened through, he has about five or six hours worth of podcasts on the topic. I was actually very pleased by the podcast that he was very willing to engage actual creationist science. And he also admitted numerous times on the podcast that if he was convinced the theology taught it, he would think that that would supersede the scientific investigation The science can be an error versus theology cannot. Um, so I thought he was very fair with both those points. So I'm very curious to see how he approaches it. I have probably about in my opening statement, which is, and I'll go from there and discussing it with him. Um, I have probably about two thirds, uh, theology and about one third science. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cause we talked, I know we talked about some of your sources the other day. We talked about like, um, the, I always pronounce it wrong. The hexameron, the hexamerian. Yeah. The he- uh, hexameron. Yeah. Yeah. And things like that. Yeah. Which I know, um, I know that Tamron at least posits a pretty literal seven-day creation. Yeah, that, that's probably his... one of the most literal works yeah, of yeah. the Church Fathers. Um, but yeah, I actually like appealing to Augustine on this point because Augustine's so clear that the chronology. Because I really think the bigger issue is chronology more so than um, what is it. Then it is Genesis 1. You know, if someone wants to affirm Genesis 1 is long ages, but then we're going to have a literal global flood like 5,000 years ago and humanity being created like 7,500 years ago. I mean, is that really, or the theistic evolutionists really going to want to defend that position? Is he a theistic evolutionist? I'm just curious. Who? Uh, Jimmy Aiken? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a theistic evolutionist. That's interesting. So cringe. Yeah. yeah. Oh, pa- oh Paleo said. Yeah. Uh, said i could but not for very long and i don't even know how i would uh get in get in on this action ha yeah. ha ha just saw that you were on thought i'd say hi always always love tuning into your stuff bro yeah i think none of us in the chat right now are admins we can't let you in right no, now we're but stuck. Once, for, yeah. once christian comes back if he can drop another link to the chat in there what are your guys thoughts on seed oils that's a question bad <laughs> bad <laughs> but on the on the other hand See, I hang around all these different trad circles where I'm constantly getting pitched to like different health supplement stuff and like other sorts of things. And I get these people are very well-meaning and recommending me all this naturopathic stuff. But I've sort of like had it up to here with it. And um, (laughs) at this point, I both cringe at the people who are like, you need to eat your seed oil and the people who are like, you're going to die if you ever eat any seed oil, you know? It's the same thing with soy, like... If you have a little bit of like soy sauce or tofu or something, like it's not going to kill you. Like you're totally yeah. fine. The problem is the people who are like their diet is mostly soy. Yeah, I think that the human body is very adaptable and we can yeah. eat really whatever we want. Like I, my job is fitness and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And this is what I'm eating every day of my life. So yeah, it's all, it's all about how you do it. So I talked to, uh, I talked to, uh, about like the laws and like the rationality of laws with Christian, a brief bit when I first was on a stream with him and about how, like, I really dislike arguments that are used where people was like, okay, why is, why was pork banned? Like, why was pork not allowed? And they'll, they'll try to make like that argument where like, oh, because it's parasite. Well, that's not obviously not like the, 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 the purity of porks is not really contingent yeah. on its pragmatic causes. It's much yeah. more, it's, it's not as simple as that, right? 
slide mic. No, but yeah, because uh, it's just a. I don't see this reason to uh, necessarily have to perfectly rationalize everything, and uh, especially dietary restrictions in this yeah. like. And I actually think the commentaries again of James Jordan really helped me out with dietary restrictions in Leviticus. He has a great book on this, uh, or at least a set of articles. I think it's actually now been turned into a book where he argues that Leviticus basically about like 10 through 15 is a repetition of the fall of man. So there's the, a new fall of man with uh, Nadab and Abihu. And then the set of punishment, the different sorts of impurities that are talked about and uncleannesses line up with the different curses on first the serpent and then the woman and then the man. Yeah. Uh, also, someone asked, uh, what do you think about Irenaeus's points in, in, uh, against heresies? 6,000 years before Christ, if I'm not wrong, other 6,000 after Christ coming. From what I got the sense from Irenaeus, I'd have to go back and read the passages again. I kind again. of agree, because I've never even read that, and I've had that thought in my head yeah. before. So. From what I can tell for Irenaeus, he seems to think all of human history would last about 6,000 years, and then a 1,000-year literal reign of Christ on Earth, because he was a premillennialist. So it seems that he thought Christ came around like 5,500, and so he thought the world was going to end somewhere around the year 500 AD. Um, mm -hmm. From what I can tell, Bonaventure actually picks up on this theme and argues basically there was about a set of seven periods. He doesn't say seven specific 1,000-year um, periods, but seven different periods of history before, um, what was it, uh, in the Old Covenant. And then he argues there'll be seven again in the New Covenant. He outlines the first six. He thinks he's living in the sixth, and there will be a seventh in which there will be a renewal of Christendom. And he actually interestingly mentions something that seems like he's suggesting the Temple of Ezekiel being built and stuff in this last period. Um, I think, though, Bonaventure is trying to go for something. Instead of literally laying out different things... That's something I'm arguing in an article I have coming out soon, that I think Bonaventure is trying to get at a more general premillennialist idea. And so we don't necessarily have to accept his exact set of periods to accept his fundamental principle that history, even in the New Covenant, is typologically related. And Bonaventure actually says we have to compare uh, literum ad literum, so literal to literal, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and that Old Covenant events will be typologically recapitulated within the New Covenant history, all the way until very much a sort of post-millennialist vision. And this is picked up especially by St. Maximilian Kolbe. And it's interesting that as the same day that St. Maximilian Kolbe founded, um, what was it? The Militia Immaculata, which was to basically push a post-millennial vision into the world using uh, devotion to Mary. Our Lady of Fatima, one of the famous appearances, I can't remember which one it was. I think it was the Miracle of the Sun, happened the same day. And she also gave the same message that eventually the world would be converted to her immaculate heart. So I'm sort of a, say, maybe a Marian post-millennialist, that I think there will be a post-millennial period of the reign of Mary over the earth before the second coming of Christ. Whoa. What are your, uh, um, what, I have to ask this because you said seven periods. It reminded me of something. So what, yeah. would, what would your thoughts be on like dispensationalism? Based. I think I think the problem with dispensationalism is I mean, I'm sort of my issue with it is it's I think fundamentally actually very similar to the Muslim view of abrogation that there's completely <laughs> distinct periods at which point uh, there's fundamental principles that underlie all of them as the moral law but then God can basically just arbitrarily abrogate the laws in different periods and set up new ones and um, <laughs> it's interesting it comes to, feels to me very much like what you were talking about with the Islamic view of abrogation. Yeah, so um, um, we would argue that yeah we would argue that to some degree like like 
abrogation isn't like um like it's not like irrational yeah like there's reasons for it but it's that it's uh those reasons aren't necessarily they don't have to be known to us yeah necessarily and i think the dispensationalist would probably say there's reasons yeah. but they're they're not focused so much on typological fulfillment of one covenant into the next because so i think um this work here we go the two cities by andrew willard jones it's a book on church history but in about the first 50 pages it's a very short work it's only about 300 pages but in the first 50 pages, he focuses on the Old Covenant, and he argues based on St. Thomas that there's a typological movement from the natural law, uh, which is basically the, Noahic, the Adamic Covenant and then the Noachic Covenant, to the Old Law, which is essentially the Abrahamic Covenant moving into the uh, Noachic Covenant. Or rather, moving into, the Mosaic covenant. Covenant, moving into the Mosaic Covenant, moving into the Davidic Covenant. And I would also argue there's a post-exilic covenant under Ezra as well that's often missed. Um oh. And then there's fundamentally, then it brings about the moves into the new law, which we're under in the church. And so he argues that the new typologically fulfills the old, but they're not necessarily abrogated so much as fulfilled. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, um, the, you mentioned the, um, sorry, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would also argue there's a really interesting idea where, like, um, so I, I would argue that, like, there's um, between, like, the natural law. And say the Mosaic Law, or like mm -hmm. the first law, whatever you want to consider the first ex establishment, yeah. the first true government is, or covenant. There's no like abrogation between those two, obviously. So yeah. laws, establishments of new covenant up until, um, at least from my understanding of that view, uh, up until the uh, Jesus is coming, would be kind of inherently, um, what's the word for it? Yeah. Uh, they're not abrogation. They're not like taking away. They're not negatively yeah. fulfilled, they're right? Yeah, they're positive abrogation. Yeah, and I think what he means more is that there's a period under, especially the time of Noah, where essentially man isn't given as a whole a specific divine law, and so man is basically set up to live just under the natural law. And then it's not that until the time of Abraham, then especially the time of Moses, that there's a divine law given to help people now understand and to illumine the natural law um there's actually a big thing of um what am i thinking of oh yeah a number of the scholastics talk about this idea that there could have been essentially a sort of natural religion uh, especially harped on by francisco suarez that before the new covenant there was essentially an idea of natural religion that human humanity could naturally know that god existed and he actually mm -hmm. argues and i think you could argue this very well from the Bible that God, um, what I think, yeah, uh, that God can naturally be known. So the state then would actually be the principle that would regulate natural religion. But then he argues that because of the gospel, that supersedes the state having the ability to regulate some sort of natural religion because the gospel supersedes that. And so I would argue then when the gospel is brought into a society that it supersedes now their ability to regulate religion on a natural level. And of course, when I say regulate religion on a natural level, it has to be monotheistic. So they can't be arguing you have to worship other gods. They can't be requiring you to do idolatry, but they can be requiring you that you have to give some sort of devotion to the one true God. Okay. Um, and I think the sort of devotion this was probably would have been whatever was passed down by Moses, or not by Moses, rather, but from Noah and the sons of Noah passing it down. Because if you look at all ancient religions throughout the world, they're very similar to the point where 
uh, at least according to Cavane, who another YouTuber I've talked about this with, he says that if you actually look at Mesoamerican temples, they line up just as well with the temple in Jerusalem as like um, other Near Eastern temples yeah, do. True. So it seems it's like true. this is a pattern that goes back to the time of Noah passing it down. Um, oh, Someone asks, and I'm just curious what you think about this, because I, mm -hmm. I, think, I think you have a kind of a unique uh, take. Yeah. Oh, before we do that, I just wanted to elaborate one more thing. Is Oh, yeah, go ahead. When I was getting on last night, you asked me about Vatican II at one point. I think that yeah. following Thomas Pink's interpretation of Suarez here, that this is fundamentally sort of a maybe very coded language, what Vatican II is talking about in Dignitatis Humanae, that the new covenant in Christ has brought about a situation, especially now that it's out, the out to the entire world, where the state can no longer regulate matters of religion qua the state, because there is now a supernatural, a true supernatural faith out there. And so they either have to recognize the true faith, in which case the members of the society who are baptized are now subject to the church. And the church itself through the state can now coerce them, but not the state qua the state, or they have to say that they're not taking a stance on what the true religion is, in which case they can't regulate one way or the other on uh, matters of religion. Interesting. Except they can, they, they can regulate though, because actually if you look in Dignitatis Humanae, it only says that it applies for monotheism. So actually there is no, nothing in Vatican II that says the state cannot outlaw something like Hinduism or at least polytheistic forms of yeah, Hinduism. Yeah, yeah, because they, they do talk uh, specifically positively about uh, Judaism mm -hmm. and, and Islam yeah. specifically. And, and, and it also says in accord with the natural, with accord with the common good. So if you had a group of like Wahhabis in your society, I yeah, think the state course, could outlaw yeah. that. That's contrary to the common good. But I think something like you, like um, like your, your sort of Shia Islam, I don't think, unless the state is Catholic, and, and the whole government is baptized. I don't think they can say anything about how you practice your religion. Interesting. So someone asked, uh, they said, hmm. what do you think about the Jewish priests converting to Christianity and the apostles still worshiping in the temple after Pentecost? Yeah, I think that up until the destruction of the second temple, we were sort of in a transitionary period between, I think this is actually specifically sort of talked about in the Olivet Discourse, that up until the destruction of the second temple, we're in this transitionary period where we can now practice um, some of the rituals of the old covenant, so long as they're not contrary to Christ. Um, because you actually don't see them offer animal sacrifices. You see them offer offerings, but that could easily just be something like cereal offerings. Maybe it is animal sacrifices, though. I don't know. Um, but it seems like they could practice until the destruction of the temple. And the church fathers are very clear on this. Now, they don't all agree on when it was no longer allowed to practice the rituals of the Old Covenant. St. Jerome thinks it was never allowed, but encounters some serious biblical issues there. Um, St. Augustine, though, I think comes to the correct conclusion where he says there must have been some time at which the gospel, what he says, was promulgated, which basically the Old Covenant was abolished and we're fully in the new. I think that's most likely the... Um, what was it? The time of the destruction of the Second Temple. Scotus, interestingly, suggests, although he's very uncertain on when it was, that um, it was after the Bar Kukba revolt or the Bar Kukba revolt. And we discussed that yesterday, the correct yeah, yeah, way yeah. to pronounce that. Yeah, the Bar Kukba revolt. Yeah, <laughs> Bar yeah. Bar revolt. There we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was it that, um, what was I going to say? 
Yeah, he suggests maybe the scattering of the Jewish Christian community and them spreading among the Gentiles and losing their identity as distinct Jewish Christians. Perhaps that was the moment that marked it out. He's sort of unclear on what it was, but he says probably if you were living at that time, you would have known. And since we're for certain, everyone agrees after that time that it's no longer allowed. So I would say to continue practicing the rituals of the old covenant, I would say is probably a mortal sin at this point. Okay. Uh, someone else, this is an interesting comment. Hinduism is a non-dual religion, so there really isn't a distinction between polytheistic Hinduism and, say, Christian-centric forms of it. I had a view at that. Well, because Hinduism, Hinduism being called a religion is sort of a um, kind of a new idea. Like, uh, Hinduism is by all more kind of concepts like a family of pretty distinct religious ideas. Yeah. And not in its end of itself religion. But all of all of forms of its religion imply some level of either very light implied polytheism or very heavily, not, like, like uh, opaque uh, polytheism mm -hmm. um, same with Buddhism uh, or Jainism yeah and that, that's why I said a sort of now I would say originally all religions in the world all these at least ancient religions were originally monotheistic before they became corrupted um, because Noah they're all they're all really different cultural versions of the original religion given to Noah which was monotheistic um, that's pretty a lot pretty close to the Islamic view funny enough yeah and so I would say then, um, and this is not anyway Catholic dogma. If someone wants to disagree with me on here, um, yeah, this yeah. is just my personal view on the matter. Um, but yeah, it seems to me that's the case. I really want to read, um, is it Dialogue with the Lord of Heaven by Matteo Ricci. He was one of the first Jesuit missionaries to China. And he argues that Confucianism is actually very, very similar to a sort of natural religion idealized by Catholicism. He sort of sees it almost as a Eastern Aristotelianism. And apparently he argues from their text that they are originally monotheistic uh, before they sort of introduced an ancestor worship into it. And so I'd be very curious to read that work. That's interesting. But yeah, that, that concept of there being like original monotheism, at least from the time, at least like the original religion being ultimately and having to be monotheistic and also the preservation of monotheism. Like yeah. part of the yeah. idea... Part of the idea with the preservation of the imams as we talked about in our last stream, that there's always an imam, is that, that, that also follows that um, there is always monotheism, right? Like there can never be a time on earth is, uh, without monotheism. Yeah, and I is think really this important. is something that causes people to misread the Old Testament is they just assume that all the Jews were monotheists, all the non, or at least the Israelites were monotheists, all the non-Israelites were pagans. Mm-hmm. And then they'll say, oh, well, we discovered like idols in Israel. Like, doesn't that disprove Christian, isn't that just proof of the Bible or, oh, we discovered some ideas, monotheistic ideas in Zoroastrianism. Doesn't that just prove the Bible? But really in the Bible, we see lots of monotheism among Gentiles. We see lots of polytheism among Israelites. And actually one of the main themes, I think, in the Old Testament is that the Israelites keep thinking that their election is on the basis of their ethnicity. Well, actually their election is on the basis of faith. And yeah. so God, when, for example, the Northern kingdom is dis being disobedient, God tells Elijah to go and anoint the king of Syria and God makes a covenant with the king of Syria. And so clearly the king of Syria then is a monotheist. Um, I think in Egypt, actually, this is where I'm going to go back to kooky land again. So Corey will like this. Is, um, <laughs> I think. I think that our chronology of ancient Egypt is completely wrong by about 500 years. And so I think that, um, what was it? The 
Um, Visor to one of the first pharaohs of the 12th dynasty, Mentuhotep, was Joseph because he saved Egypt from a famine. And interestingly, Mentuhotep constructed the first parts of the temple at um, Karnak in Egypt, in southern Egypt. The temple at Karnak was a giant temple, was added onto by many later pharaohs, by, um, and it was a giant temple to Amun. And so Amun is a sort of strange god who appears sort of out of the nowhere on the scene here. There's a little bit of mentions of him in the Old Kingdom, but he really starts coming on the scene here a little bit in the New Kingdom. And so I think Amun is just the Egyptian name for the true god. And so I think this is Joseph has traveled to Egypt, and he's actually converted the Egyptians to being monotheists, as was acceptable among Gentiles at that time, which meant some unfortunate idolatry and polytheistic additions. But I would say for that time, God recognized the weakness of Gentiles at that time. Um, uh, someone someone's asked, asked, yeah, 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 I don't think that Amun is a pagan god. And the reason I yeah, don't yeah. think Amun is a pagan god is we have a, lots and lots and lots of hymns written to him in the new in the, the new kingdom. And I would argue the new kingdom, the 18th dynasty, starts up. So I think the Hyksos, who came in and conquered Egypt for a long time, I think these were the Amalekites after the Exodus happened. Egypt is ruined. The Amalekites come in and take over Egypt. Now, the next time we see the Amalekites in the Bible is during the time of Saul. And so I think this is when the Amalekites are kicked out of Egypt and um, the Amalekites end up in um, Israel again, Saul and David fight with them and eventually wipe out the Amalekites. That's why we don't see them in history again ever since. And this is why the Hyksos are very mysterious. You need the Bible to know who they are. Um, but interestingly, we at this time then have a big explosion again of writings about Amun. And if you look at these hymns about Amun, they're incredibly monotheistic. They're extremely clear that Amun is the only true God and that all other Egyptian gods are just manifestations of different aspects of Amun. This is incredibly clear, and actually pretty much the only devotion we find at this time of large temples is the building at Karnak of the worship of Amun. Now, interestingly, this place is Akhenaten, and they have the opposite light that he's usually shown in, because Akhenaten is usually shown as this, the first monotheistic pharaoh. But under this theory, Akhenaten then aligns at the same time with King Ahab. And interestingly, a lot of the imagery used by Ahab in Nefertiti lines, rather used by Akhenaten and Nefertiti, closely lines up with the imagery. We have coins from this time used by Ahab and Jezebel. And so the worship of Aten then under Akhenaten is actually a form of bull worship that was pulling people away from the worship of the true god, Amun, that Egypt had established under the influence of the Israelites. And that's sort of my kooky theories on Egypt, on Egypt. The only argument I've seen strong against this is that Jeremiah at one point does condemn the priests of Amun as, as evil, and, and they clearly have a different god. But this is also probably around the time of like the 20th, so like the 26th dynasty at this point, significantly away from the time we're discussing here. And so it seems like Amun worship eventually became corrupted back into paganism. Uh, someone asked, are there different Christologies in Islam? Uh, Christology is not only a, like a, like a, I wouldn't consider yeah. Christology as an aspect of Islamic yeah. belief. Yeah. Is, someone asked me, can I be certain the God of Amun is the one God? No, I can't be certain. And so that's why I would never, in any of my prayers, refer to God as Amun. I would never use those Egyptian prayers. But if you go to a book by um, Jan Osman, 
Um, he has a good book on monotheism in New Kingdom Egypt, looking at these hymns. Um, Jan Osman is actually an atheist, and he's actually using these to try and argue that Moses, living in the 19th dynasty under Pharaoh Ramses II on a conventional chronology, was influenced by Egyptian monotheism. And so he's trying to argue that actually the Bible is just ripped off of Egyptian theology. But I would actually, use, I think his arguments for that are very strong, but I would argue he gets his chronology wrong and backwards, and that it's actually the um, Egyptians who are borrowing from the Israelites. Oh, just me and Pazatine Skodas back again, just us two. Yeah. Uh, Corey said he's got to go, and I can end up talking. Uh, peace out. Great. Okay. See you later, Corey. Great talking to you. Yeah. Great meeting you. Um, uh, do you mean Aten or Aten? A T E N. Yeah, Aten. Yeah. Am I mispronouncing? I don't know how to pronounce any Egyptian, and I also don't believe any of the scholarly reconstructions are accurate. So I don't think we really know how ancient Egyptian was pronounced. Uh, they literally just use like Coptic from like oh, a thousand years later to try and reconstruct what it sounded <laughs> like. <laughs> Uh, I mean, we, we, we already had a discussion yesterday about your takes on uh, Latin pronunciation. I think yeah. Were, uh... <laughs> See, I just think we can't well reconstruct what ancient Latin pronunciation was, and so we should just use ecclesiastical because it sounds a lot nicer. That's nice that we have, you know, um, you know Arabic. Arabic, you know, that sounds that's been around for since you know, <laughs> Yeah. I, I do think that the reconstructed pronunciation of Latin is probably more accurate because we do have lots of writings that do corroborate it. But I think we're probably missing lots of nuances. For example, and we I have, saw... And we I have saw, more languages that exist that are actually, like, directly descended of it. Yeah. Than we do with Egyptian. Yeah, and there is... Um, what is it? A... Ave, so the Ave Maria. So that word in classical Latin would be Awe. You would think by a reconstructed pronunciation, but we know it's not Awe. We know it's Hawe because we have Romans who are semi-literate writing that as graffiti at Pompeii. Interesting. Interesting. So clearly it was pronounced Hawe, not Awe. Interesting. And, uh, but yeah, when it comes to Arabic, Arabic's actually an interesting. So Arabic, um, I talked about this a bit on an other Paul's discord where Arabic for a long time is just not a written language. And, uh, and it's also a pretty insignificant, uh, this Arabic culture as a whole is not very significant. So, um, at the time of, Oh, Christian, yo, you, you, uh, you missed my schizo ranting about how Egyptian chronology is wrong by 500 years. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to leave and rejoin because my video is lagged. So I'm going to need you to re-permit me to back in. Okay. Sense. Yep. I got you. Right. What have you guys been talking about without me? Uh, yeah, I talked for a while about Egyptian chronology and my sort of schizo theories on Egyptian chronology. Um, I don't. I think there's one guy in the chat who wasn't buying it, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's back. There we go. I'm back. Now I'm finally on top. I won't be blocked out the next time we put up a comment <laughs> on the screen. <laughs> Yeah, just me, me instead. Now it'll be me. <laughs> instead of Mrs. Curtis, it'll be me. Okay, bye, Corey. Yeah, Corey yeah. had to leave. Um, okay. Well, I was so... talking about, so Arabic, what's interesting is that Arabic's one of the least, like if you look at actual, like, like compare modern standard Arabic to uh, the Quran, and it's not completely, like you'd have, you have to know a lot of unique vocabulary, but it's more comparable to like King James English which is interesting because King James English to modern English is, you know, 400 years ago, while modern Arabic to the Quran is 1400 years ago. And that just shows like how like the Quran basically froze the Arabic language in time. So it doesn't really evolve past that because they don't want it to become unintelligible. Interesting. 
Yeah. See, I remember hearing something a while ago about how there's some words in the Quran that nobody knows like what they mean. Is that true? There's letters. There's letters. Okay. Because I remember when I was like a cringe atheist listening to some dumb atheist thing about like atheists read the Quran. It was incredibly yeah. cringe. But they had a thing where they were like, what if those letters mean like don't fly planes into buildings? Like, wouldn't you want to know what those mean? <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, what they are is they, they literally are just letters. Mm -hmm. um, the, people misconfuse them for, for, um, for words because when they hear them said, you would say like Alif La Mean, which kind of sounds like a word, but it's literally just the A-L-M in Arabic. Which is an example of one, and they just they appear at the start of certain uh, certain chapters, and no one really. There's some like thesis, some different theories of what they could symbolize, but there's no like for sure what they mean. Yeah. Uh, some think they point to certain attributes. Some think they point to certain names. Some think they point to other things. Well, that's about it. Uh, the Quran is pretty, uh, like I said, the Arabic, uh, of the Quran is like, it's pretty, if you know the Arabic language, it's not particularly difficult. It also is a pretty small, but like, like, like same with like, um, like, I'm sure you know, this, biblical Hebrew is an incredibly compact language. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not yeah. very large. It's the same I, thing with Quranic Arabic, where yeah. Quranic Arabic is actually quite small in its, uh, entire vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the th reasons I think my um, Latin picked up better than my Greek is Greek's vocabulary is just like incredibly, insanely large. That's how modern Arabic is, actually. Uh, but Arabic didn't used to always be like that. Yeah, I'm so glad English is my first language because after trying to learn, <laughs> like even just Latin, I don't think I could ever learn English if it wasn't my first language. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get what you mean. Arabic... Um, yeah. I would say that Arabic, like people, people have this idea that Arabic is like terribly, like the most difficult thing of all time. Uh, and it's not that difficult as long as you you aren't too, like if you know a second language, Arabic's gonna be way easier for you because you'll yeah. already be used to be putting in. The issue is that Ar everything about Arabic grammar is un is like atypical for English speakers. Yeah, your Latin hat Latin just has the endings of words change, but if you work with enough students, you'll quickly discover that's annoying. The thing I hate about Greek is Greek when you want to put words in the past tense, you put the letter epsilon, the letter e at the beginning of the Greek yeah. word. Um, yeah. which is usually fine. It's usually obvious. You just cut off the E. The annoying part is when there's another vowel there, the two vowels combine and they usually form an ita instead, another Greek letter, which means when you want to look up this word in the dictionary, you have to guess what the first letter originally was before the E allied with it. Yeah. And when like you're on a timed test trying to translate something sitting in front of you and you can't find the word anywhere in the dictionary and you want to kill yourself, that's what <laughs> it's really bad. One of the issues with uh, Arabic is that Arabic likes to sometimes use similar uh, word endings for different grammatical rules. So, for example, uh, the letter, the a word ending with T in Arabic could mean like four different things depending mm -hmm. on circumstances. It could mean that it's a feminine word. It could mean that it's a verb in the past tense. It could mean a lot of things. Yeah. Um, I will say another issue with Arabic is that Arabic likes to take as many shortcuts with verbs as, as possible. So, for example, there's no verb in Arabic for, like, the, the, the equivalent of, like, to be. So if you said, like, I am eating a sandwich or something like that, you would literally just say, I eating sandwich. There's no, like, am. There's no of those kinds of verbs, which can make it sort of hard to follow if you're oh, not yeah. used to context. Yeah. Your Latin usually lacks that, except in the uh, perfect passive, it actually takes back on a to-being verb with it. That's and also in the um, 
since there is no future subjunctive in Greek and Latin, when you kind of want to have a future subjunctive, you can take the future participle and put a to a being a to be verb in the subjunctive and pretend like it's a future <laughs> subjunctive because they don't have that. That's funny. What what are you doing, Christian? You seem very intense, very Easter oh, Island face again. <laughs> I'm, respond, I'm responding to Byzantine Scotus on the Discord about the Scantia, Shantia media. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, so I don't actually affirm the Shantia media. I, aff I affirm in principle whatever uh, Bartholomeus Masterius says in his work on this. I don't understand it because I can't read the Latin because it's in a weird font and it makes my mind turn off Latin whenever I try and look at it. But all the Scotists I know have affirmed that it's good. So I'll affirm in principle whatever's in it. I found <laughs> I found one article in English on it, but the article was actually an article trying to say that um, what is it? Molina, Banyes, and Mastrius all poking holes in each other's systems proves that Catholicism has fundamental logical flaws in it. Now he says that Catholicism was therefore a dead thesis to like explain the world by the mid 17th century, despite its political power. And he thinks this is what led to the downfall of Catholicism. It was, we disproved it ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. So, so um, so that, that makes me skeptical that his explanation of mastery is entirely correct. So, so your comment was that, uh, specifically that I was talking about was, mm -hmm. um, that Matthew 11, Mm -hmm. would provide a proof of the Shanshia media. Yeah. Uh, for everybody that doesn't know middle knowledge. Um, yeah. I would also I say it specifically I, shows a Suarezian, a Suarezian version of it. I don't think it would work with sort of a pure Molinist position that would affirm conditional election. Because yeah. what it seems to suggest is that God could have influenced their wills some other way. But it does also seem to say that God in his mind contemplates all these different possible worlds is all I was saying. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I think that kind of misunderstands the state of the question mm -hmm. because I can, I can affirm that God in his, um, in his natural knowledge is uh, knowledge of simple intelligence that he knows future contingents, but the state of the question is whether those future contingents in relation to the will of man is apart from a, uh, apart from the decree or not paleocrats here. Yeah. I'm like, you guys Here just fucking everybody. It's oh, true, we've man. Like, we've had like 10 true. people on the stream tonight. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I just stumbled in, man. I saw it was live. And I, I watched your I watched your episode with Pope Michael. It was amazing, oh. man. I think I really do. I, I believe it is probably the standard episode on YouTube for people who want to genuinely, honestly study to know what the conclavists believe. Uh, yeah, I genuinely yeah, yeah. think he presented a good argument in it, in that if I was convinced now that Vatican II and like all the popes after Vatican II are heretics, then it seems like the conclusion would not be a set of a contism, right. but yeah. um, conclavism with Pope Michael, because a set of a yes. can't seem to decide how they're going to elect a new pope. Well, that's why I left yeah. set of a contism. Mm -hmm. I used to be honestly, a set of a contest, and I, I left honestly, because they couldn't. <laughs> There was no, there was no getting the bishops together to the Motel Six. Because I they literally thought, <laughs> I, I thought it was literally just some dude in Kansas who started calling himself the Pope. I didn't realize I he actually had like a well-articulated argument for his position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. What, for, twenty for years me, on it, fifteen years me, on it, I like figuring um, it out. If obviously my first choice is the the one true church, the yeah. Roman Church. But if I had to go number two, people always ask me that. Like, what would you do if you couldn't be a Catholic and you had to leave the church? What would be your second option? I used to say the old Catholics. I 
but now I think I'm saying Pope Michael. Pope Michelson. I think Pope Michael. <laughs> isn't, isn't he actually like, in fairness, like just being real? Because it's easy to kind of think he's kind of like, you know, a real life Napoleon Dynamite type thing. Like you can almost imagine the characters in his life. That's kind of the way it is. Um, but in real life, dude, he's actually very intelligent. His yeah. constantly attempt. He's, he's actually quite pastoral. Like in his, yeah. his Facebook, it's generous. It's kind. It's imploring people to to not, you know, uh, get crazy at each other. And he's deep, man. Like, and he's willing to put himself on the line to be made a mockery of. He, he knows, he knows what's up with this. He knows that, you know, and, and he's willing to say, look, there's quite likely I will never see the Vatican. He's not delusional about that. Yeah. He believes he's in exile, that that's the nature of it. But these, these set of Akandas guys, they've all got magical ideas about how it's going to work out. It's either the end times for sure, no doubt about it, or, it's um, which always outlives them, right? The claim, and then you've got um, the idea that Peter and Paul will come down, and they're gonna um, elevate somebody, or Rome, the people of Rome will come together, and they're gonna clamor and stuff like that. And I, I started asking around. I started asking like, how many missions do you guys have in Rome? And they're like, what? And I'm like, well, yeah. If you think it's all in Rome, where all your, you know, you must be sending a lot of priests or something. You know, I mean, you yeah. got to be getting that message out there, and like. No, I'm like, of course not, because you're in all these other countries everywhere, but you're just leaving this up to just pure magic thought at this point. Yeah. 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 Christian, can you throw my share screen up there? (laughs) 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 I I made it for a meme page on Facebook a while ago, and it actually got a like and share by Pope Michael himself. So, (laughs) I think, oh, uh, wow. That was a few years ago. Christian's talked about this, but like he has like this like almost like uh encyclopedic knowledge about set of just in his head. Yeah, I just, like, he just emailed had, like, him. He just like knows in his in his mind like anything about set of yeah. You could bring. I emailed. Up, I emailed him earlier out. today, and um, I'll be bringing him on, Lord willing, uh, for a stream against set of with him. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Can we can we get a debate between him and a set of I could probably set that up if you have a set of a contest in mind. I have a set of a contest I know. I'll PM him and see if he's interested in debating Pope Michael. Okay. I would love to debate a set of a contest sometime. Okay. I've been I've been writing I've been writing for for one Peter five their series on set of a contest and man apparently there's some some bigwigs over there that say they don't understand my argument. I I also know one Peter five. Yeah, I'm an author one Peter five. So just tell one Peter five to bring me on after I got kicked off of. I was a contributor at North American Anglican, which is like the big Anglican, like Orthodox Anglican uh, sort of uh, blog. I got when I was an Anglican, they brought me on as a contributor and then they kicked me off when I converted. I pitched an article to one Peter five about like SCOTUS's view of the Trinity. And I got um, it was yeah, Tim Flanders got back to me. I was like, yeah, it seems a little too big brain for it. So I need to, he said, let's do like a more simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't oh. even know what I would, I would write because I'm not like a popular, I guess. I don't know. Am I a popular level guy? Would you guys say I'm a popularizer? You're not Michael. Lott, yeah, dude. Not a, yes. You're, you're more, yes. You're, you're a bit popular, but you're not, you know, no, 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 like popularizer. Like you know, oh, like I, yeah. I take yeah, I take big yeah. brain stuff and I and I put them out there for the dummies. Yeah, 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 yeah. the masses, man. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think I'm good at explaining that. stuff when I can talk it out, but I find it not as articulate in writing. One day I'll put together like an entire like 700 hour playlist, just commenting on the entire Summa. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I think that's what makes your like your Suma breakdown videos pretty good is that like you have a pretty good like a like a habit of like saying a paragraph and breaking down what the paragraph means and moving yeah around. that that comes from my background um catechizing like middle schoolers yeah uh, because when I, I was uh, yeah when I, I was teach catechizing school theology and I do the same thing we read the paragraph of the textbook and then we discuss it yeah yeah so having having to do that all the time then also having to like uh teach my wife the faith and she doesn't have a theological background yeah. i actually took her through some of uh thomas's compendium theologia i think if i do a series like an entire systematic series because if you read the compendium theologia it makes perfect sense connecting all of the attributes of god and why we say each one of those attributes that would honestly be like my favorite thing to do i love that you do that it's actually one of the things that i've enjoyed about yeah. you because i you know, I was kind of doing that. Well, I that's all I do. <laughs> I went through Knox's enthusiasm. Uh, it's like 600 pages, you know, and then I went through uh, uh, Father Lassance's manuals for young girls and young boys. I went through secular age. Well, I went through how not to be secular. It's like a, a summary of secular age. And now I'm going through Christianity and crisis about the word faith movement. I just I'll, I'll take stuff that I highlighted that I find particularly good. I'll read about I'll read it. And then I'll comment whether That's critical, whether supportive. Yeah. It keeps you on track too, man. You're not saying knee jerk reactionary nonsense. Yeah. Which really yeah, spares yeah. you the rod of looking I, dumb. So I originally kinda, was like good. doing a ton of research into a topic on scotism, then like making a video about it. And I got caught up doing that like every week because I was only working part time, um, like for a lot of last year. And so I was able to do that. But this year I was a bit a lot more busy. So I've just been doing live streams, but I get larger numbers on my live streams than when I pre-record something anyways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that also makes me feel bad because I know my live streams don't go as in depth as my pre like researched and scripted and stuff videos. Uh, you could do like, like people like you could people, do like give uh, the people what they want, man. Give the people yeah. what they want. I, yeah. I've been thinking just recently. I found this great article by um, Mary Beth Ingham on some of like the main points of SCOTUS that I thought was really good. So I'm thinking of just doing a video, like reading it and then discussing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was gonna say question. you could do like you could do like stream notes too, like a like you know just how like some set I have ideas you want to discuss on a stream that you know you've researched or something along those lines. Or... My yeah. stream notes are the summa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have some outlines for an idea for a book that I know I'll never make myself sit down and write the whole thing anytime soon. Maybe I should just turn that into uh, bullet points instead for a stream. Yeah, I've been thinking yeah. about writing an introduction to Newman's Development of Doctrine because like Newman's essay on development is extremely hard to read for anybody that's not a flaming autist like myself. <laughs> so like, and that's the only, that's really the only book in English. There's plenty of books in Spanish and in French and still trapped yeah. in Latin about the development of doctrine, but really all we have in English is Newman and everybody just like loves when I do Newman streams. Like when I did the Swan Sono one, people were all over that. <laughs> so I, I think, I think it'd be a good idea to write like a 100, 150 page sort of like synopsis of Newman's thought. I, on, I think uh, that'd be very helpful. I just need the time to write it. So that, that's a reminder yeah. for all of you 18 watching. Become a patron, patreon.com slash militant to help me write a book. Yeah. To back up that it's not totally modernist, a lot of the trads love Maximilian Kolbe. And I think he was either influenced by Newman or similar ideas to Newman. Um, so that might be, you could maybe cite some extra sources in there to show that he's not being modernist. Oh my gosh. that That's, that's the worst. I hate when people call Newman a modernist. Yeah. It just gets bandied about, doesn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, they're just literally just, just winging it at everybody. <laughs> you disagree with my take on trandom? You're a minor yeah. liberal. <laughs> Pardon me, no, he was a modernist. You're a modernist <laughs> liberal. <laughs> yeah. In, in defense man. of my debate partner in a few days, I um, – found this article online. I was trying to research stuff from Jimmy Aiken. I came across an article accusing him of heresy for his views on predestination. I thought it was, he was going to be like, he was a Molinist and they were going to call it Molinism heresy or something like that. They started citing the council of Trent in the Summa, but no, they they called him a modernist for believing unconditional election. And they said what? that was his Calvinist influence. And then they tried to argue that the St. Thomas and Trent both used the words free will and Calvin doesn't believe in free will that therefore they totally were believing in conditional Additional election, what? and they claim, and they claim that I think it was like some set of a contest website accusing him of this or something too, which made it even funnier. Oh my yeah, gosh, man. that is that's just horrible. Because I'm that's like intense. a firm believer. I'm like a pure Bonyesian, like promotion of the will, <laughs> like physical promotionist and stuff. And they probably would just be like, "Get out of here, you modernist, <laughs> Calvinistic <laughs> heretic." They'd probably talk about how you're influenced by Newman and you used to be an Anglican. Oh, wait, wait. Okay. So somebody, there's actually a question in the chat that I meant to answer. Milton Thomas, wasn't Newman a big part of your conversion? I've always felt Franciscan thought was an easier transition to Catholicism than Thomism. But that has to do a little bit with my background uh, studying reform scholasticism. So the people that I was studying in the reformed world were broadly Thomistic. So once I started actually reading Thomas to help with my reading of the reformed, then that kind of gave me a... Um, a push in the direction and then newman uh my main influence was newman was when it comes to the questions of history because as somebody who was read in reformed scholastic thought i knew that history wasn't as clean as the uh pop catholic apologists like to make it seem and that history was a little more dirty than that and once once i read newman's development hypothesis and then started to think on ecclesiology a little bit that is that's where newman's influence came in not necessarily on the broad stroke of my dogmatic theology yeah. Yeah, I will say for Eric that I do agree with him that I think, at least for some people, that I think actually Scotus, even though his actual writings can come off a lot more complex, I think he's often more intuitive on a lot of things than Thomas, even if he's hard to grasp at first. Um, and so, yeah, that's my thoughts on it. I found good, good luck teaching, reading Scotus, though. Yeah, no, reading Scotus <laughs> himself is horrible <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> when, yeah. when he gets on a roll, though, he's he can be really good sometimes to read. Um, okay. But yeah. So 101 Caliber asks, why not write a short article or frequent asked question on what is development there, of doctrine and what it is not? Your, so I have a series, actually, on development of doctrine there, on my page. There's your but, one um, Peter Five article explaining development of yeah, doctrine. Yeah, there you go. There yeah. you go. Contra, <laughs> summa contra, what would Protestants be in Latin? Uh, I'm the worst person to ask. Come on, Latinist, Byzantine Scotus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be, yeah. I think while those are really helpful, um, there's a few lines of thought in Newman that he brings out in some of his other works on a more mystical understanding of how the development of doctrine works that doesn't get as much coverage because he doesn't talk about it in his essay. I think that would be really helpful to kind of synthesize uh, those other works that people don't read because the way that you read the development of doctrine, it kind of seems more like, Oh, we're just going like in logical sequence from proposition to proposition to proposition. And then man is sort of taking those premises in the apostolic deposit and bringing forth the conclusions. That's not how Newman thinks about it. 
Newman thinks about it in a more mystical sense, wherein the Holy Spirit leading the church in their reception of the apostolic deposit brings those conclusions. And it's only by looking back that we're able to see that they're logically connected. It's, it's a little more, it's, it's a little yeah. weirder than that. I like yeah. it. Christian, now you might have encountered this a little bit being in the Reformed world originally. Have you heard of post-millennialism? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, yes, yeah. and I am a post-mill. Oh, you, yeah, you are post-mill. Good. Yes, there bro. we go. Because I think yeah. I, I think Newman's development of doctrine is the doctrinal element of post-mill. That yes. God intends us to continue to study the do body of doctrine and grow over time. And this is one of the reasons why God has allowed the church to exist in time. To yes, grow so, in knowledge okay. of God. Yeah, and that's why that. I actually think that rejecting the late scholastics is really bad. Because that means you're rejecting that God's spirit was going with the church at that time okay if, so, you, if you adopt like a radical orthodoxy view that the late scholastics went in the wrong direction with scholasticism so so think about this uh are you familiar with like Vossian biblical theology in the reformed world like any of the biblical theology movement kind of like no. the, the stuff you read in like light heart like, oh yeah about, no, I'm, like, I'm very aware of light yeah about like yeah. temple theology and stuff like oh that. yeah about yeah. about basically the seed of revelation growing through i think honestly that's the that's a really good way of explaining it the reformed people that i found being able to explain it like, oh, you know how all of Revelation was basically contained yeah. in uh, the deposit given to Adam, and then yeah. over time it becomes more explicit. Like, yeah. do that, and, but all, with the history of the church. And <laughs> I do it. That... I do it with uh, saying, you know, bring up to Dr. Gary North or Gary Demar or anybody who says that uh, Reformed theologians are the only ones with a social theory. Bring up the the fact that long before Rush Dooney, long before Rush Dooney. We've been making social encyclicals and that Rush were progressive in, in uh, spreading the gospel. And the best, to me, that sums it up in an eschatological mm. way for the end is uh, Pope St. Pius X, his encyclical, yeah. The Restoration of All Things in Christ. You cannot read that and walk away and say, with a defeatist, doomer, gloomer eschatology. Impossible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. like, we're, we're literally taking it over, folks. <laughs> it's a matter of time. Yeah. So, and um. Yeah. I think actually Rush Dooney doesn't have a social theory. It's the Catholics are the only right. ones yeah. really with a social theory because Rush Dooney has, quote, mining the Old Testament, basically, and then trying to post hoc come up with a social theory rather than having a social theory that both explains the Old Testament and explains how you can deal with issues in your own time where you're in different circumstances now than the Israelites. Gary Norris, healer of nations, has this wild idea that there will need to be some kind of a a church, like an institution, a church that would be able to authoritatively declare doctrines and yeah. figure things out. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, so, <laughs> it's been around for a minute, homie. There's only yeah. one post-mill really institution on earth because all the different Eastern churches, they have stopped developing shortly after they broke off. Uh, from Rome. Rome has continued to develop. The Protestants have to reinvent everything every few generations and reinvent the yes, wheel each time. Yes, yes. So it is the you... Catholic Church alone that's developed, can definitively settle an issue, and then move yes. on. Let me let me find a quote real quick about this from Newman. Yeah. Um, when it... you when you read Newman, um, his his main <laughs> critique of the Greeks is the fact that the Greeks have kept the principles or the uh, the various doctrines. Of, without of the development spirit. on up uh, yes without the spirit so the and greeks just can't... like the protestants have become a dead church because yep. they've and... they haven't kept the life and the principle and the and the idea yeah which is found in the in the catholic faith they've just kept the external doctrine and, and i think this is obvious if you go read 
a lot of either sort of the period of what they would call sort of the Latin captivity or even the more recent writers up until really the 21st century, where they were not understanding the philosophy behind their own writers like Palamas and stuff. And now there's been a revival of discovering that and actually realizing that their own writers were very philosophically advanced, almost, I don't think all the way to the level of the scholastics, but quite advanced. And now they're going back and realizing they've been misreading a lot of their own texts somewhat because they didn't have the principles behind it anymore. They had just the doctrines that were there. Yeah, yeah. so 101 Caliber asks another question. Have you read any of the orthodox objections to the development of doctrine? And if so, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so with the um, orthodox objections to doctrinal development, uh, I think if you read the earlier orthodox uh, doctors of the church kind of before, I want to say 18th, 19th century, there's, well, before the kind of anti-Latin sentiment came up in the 19th century, what you get is actually a much more positive reception of the idea of doctrinal development than you get in more modern authors who just hate everything Latin. There's a good paper on this. Uh, I'll have to dig it up and then I can send it if you need. Yeah. I think it's funny that we're, this is still a stream called Beza Sodomite Poem. Oh my okay let me yeah let me change the name of the stream real quick i know this it's like a, this has been streams. interesting just uh just listening because like i don't obviously I don't have much to say on this like contextually i'm not a you know yeah. roman catholic doctrinal development yeah. specialist well, but it's interesting what i was trying to discuss with you last night alex is sort of trying to develop if there was an islamic idea of post-millennialism in a lot of our discussion last night yeah i'd have yeah. to understand post-millennialism better i have a very it's, it's basically the idea that there will be sort of a political victory yeah. of the church within history but yeah yeah and i think i think we discussed that there is to a degree a concept of that but i think it's it's less emphasized because there's a very big emphasis on like not discussing uh the eschaton very much like it's very stressed that one shouldn't really discuss it too yeah. much because there's uh because it's such uh much of it's so left to god that like pondering on it can be seen as a like, pretty grave sin in our view too much so that's, that's what i, I was renamed saying, it to beta beza sodomite poem islam and development of doctrine that sums it up well <laughs> yeah, okay yeah. so what did i want to oh yeah i think shia alex the uh, islam <laughs> the islamic view on pleasures i think yeah. that doesn't hold any reasonable ground because and you're going to hate me for this Byzantine Scotus. Mm -hmm. I hate you. But when it comes to the sensitive appetites, the sensitive appetites are in service and referenced to, um, to a higher end. So if you were to make sensitive appetites, such as um, sexual pleasure or such as food or wine or whatever it may be, mm -hmm. those are referenced um, in their usage to the supreme good. Well, why would I disagree with that? I'm just curious. Oh, because I was gonna, I was gonna actually bring in the the will and the intellect too. Okay, so I, I, don't, I don't think I disagree with this. As, at least as it's going yeah. now. But yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that's going to be my main argument because the lower faculties are in service of the higher faculties. So, if you make sensitive appetites uses and ends in themselves, then there's something which which God has a deficiency with. In, insofar as uh, the sensitive appetites are not applicable to him because he can only uh, enjoy the um, the pleasures of intellect and will in the fact that he loves and the fact that he enjoys. 
Um, it depends. Like it depends. So well, one, I'd argue. I'd, I don't argue, but I'd say like um regarding like it being pointed towards a higher, a higher being. Uh, we would argue that it is in the sense that any sort of like creation is kind of made to honor God, right? Yes. So we have the view that any create anything that's created, uh, is is meant in a, in a sense to 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 honor God and to be a, a tool of worship, right? Um, could you restate what you said about the will? I'm actually, I don't think I got that. Like, okay. You guys didn't process it. So about the will in, in what respect? Just, can you restate what you said? Cause I don't think I processed it. Like, I think oh, about, about, about lower yeah. to higher faculties. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the lower faculties are in service of the higher faculties. For example, mm -hmm. the body is in service to the soul. I'm sure, I'm sure you could agree upon that. The body is since the, uh, uh, I mean, you could even give the argument that like for example like uh the body is in service to the intellect in our view yeah yeah the body is in service to soul the sensitive appetite and also like the animal kingdom is in service to the humans humans yeah. are in service to there's an God, inherent hierarchy angels. everything's yeah, there's hierarchical. An inherent hierarchy yeah. so if we are to take um mm -hmm. the scent the pleasures of the sensitive appetite which is yeah. would be for example a sexual pleasure uh the pleasures food. of food and, Water, and, and, and yeah, su such like that. If we were to take them as ends in themselves mm -hmm. rather than uh, merely things to be used yeah. for the to, for the final end, then that would be a disordered. Uh, we would uh, we wouldn't argue that they're ends to themselves in the sense that we would argue that like they they both have a purpose and that they have they have like an end to themselves purpose and that they, they end of themselves are are pleasurable or whatever you know they have a certain like it doesn't in the sense in a hierarchy in that sense but it also does also serve a pragmatic purpose um that would not necessarily be established in the afterlife if that makes sense so i would argue that they're um that really they're in a sense the, their their uh their presence in the in the afterlife is in a perfected form just as anything in the, in the afterlife is in a perfected form uh that serves in a way to honor and worship god and just a unique tool of doing so it sounds so that, like that a, hierarchical a, that hierarchical uh, thing is still preserved, in my view. So, a, so, I so I the hierarchy in defense of Shia Alex. I think I mostly agree with your point, and I still think what Shia Alex is articulating is overall problematic. But couldn't someone say that those goods are still lovable in themselves? Um, because they are good, just that they're not absolutely lovable in themselves because there's they're yeah. not the absolute good. Yeah, I'm saying that they're loved as instruments because from the fact that um that goods are not goods ipsum esse would subsisting in itself but um goods are goods ab alio which is us which is uh, to another so since yeah. the fact that good subsists not in itself but subsists in participation with the true good which is god um who is subsistent good so so in, in well, that, that in that sense that, of being an instrument that um, would be ad alium though because it right, wouldn't ab alio I, I'm not. I'm just going. I think this, ab alia would be from another, so it's receiving its good from another. Yeah, the ad yes, alia fits to another. Uh, yeah. from another. From okay. another. Yes. Um, I misspoke. Um, yeah, but if it's from another, then couldn't it have goodness in itself, which it has now received from another? So we're. So, for example, someone could say, right, that they're enjoying this pleasure, like drinking alcohol, for example, because it was created by God and it maybe in some way images God, but it's not necessarily in service of some higher good, or do you say it has to be in service I would, of some I would higher also, good? Just to kind of, kind of 
give a kind of a thing I think is worth noting in the sense. Like, for example, everyone agrees. I'm not going to say because we both agree that it was like, for example, an ultimate act of worship, right? In their sense, it would be communion. In my sense, it would be uh, the prayer. But then there's also minor acts of worship, right? Acts of worship that are lesser, but those acts of worship still certainly to a degree play a role of importance and would play, I think, play a role of importance in, in a sense in the afterlife only to the degree that like, you know, they uh, just because of their lesser standard, they're not like the ultimate doesn't mean that they're um, any less uh, worthwhile in pursuit, if that makes sense. But yeah, that's all I have to say. That would be um, so like Thomas says right here, I guess I'll share my screen because I'm <laughs> yeah. going to be reading. Okay, share screen. I can't comment enough how um, oh, Yamani's here. That's a the, Anon Double Zero is a person I know who I know is uh, quite intelligent who I can I can kind of uh, uh, <laughs> attest to his ability. Okay, let yeah. me somebody come on and debate the incarnation with me. I've been asking like every Muslim I know and none of them want to. <laughs> I don't think he would. <sighs> okay. We have, we have narratives so... that worshiping God for the sake of reward is a lesser form of obedience, faith, and worshiping God for the sake of himself. Same applies for punishment. Yeah, that's true. So this is that human happiness does not consist in carnal pleasures. Mm -hmm. So notice right here, the fables of the Jews and the Mohammedans, Mohammedans are also refuted who pretend that the reward of the righteous consists in such pleasures for happiness is the reward of virtue. Okay. And I think this is a good argument. The last end of everything is God, as was proved above. You must therefore posit as man's last end, that by which especially man approaches to God. Now man is hindered by the aforesaid pleasures from his chief approach to God, which is affected by contemplation to which these same pleasures are a very great hindrance. Since more than anything, they plunge man into the midst of sensible things and consequently withdraw him from intelligible things. Therefore, human happiness is not to be placed in bodily pleasures. So what he is, what he's getting at here is that we can speak of the sensitive appetites and the intellect. Now, the chief end of chief end of man, the end of human existence is in the beatific vision because from the fact that our intellect is our highest faculty, and don't get mad at me, Byzantine Scotus, mm -hmm. from the fact that our intellect is our highest faculty, we are actualized and reach our final end. We reach the telos of human existence in the complete and full actualization of our intellect in the contemplation of a certain object, which is God. But if we are saying that our sensitive appetites, which are lower than our intellect, are also, um, are also being uh, ordered by the soul to a certain to a certain end then that hinders the action the act of the intellect so it really is a um really is a i guess a way of describing it would be a zero-sum game that um that you can't at the same time be contemplating and then also be acting uh in in the sensitive appetites towards the enjoyment of carnal pleasures I would so it'd, be a, it'd be a less perfect afterlife is what i'm saying I would argue that it's simply that simply the the uh, the only like the I guess the mistake there would just be simply that you um, just that those are like mutually like that um, how would I word this that like for example a very common like I think I think uh, who was it that mentioned it someone mentioned that like part of the issue uh, it was um, Hassan in the in the Discord yep. mentioned that part of the issue with um, carnal pleasures that like in their maximum we have a period of of a lapse of rationality right. Yes. So, you know, uh, 
but I think we would I think we would contest that idea in in the afterlife that for example in the afterlife they would be perfected so they would not be mutually exclusive in that sense. Okay, what would the object of intellection be? What do you mean? Can you clarify? What you mean? So let's say in the afterlife you are enjoying a nice cup of wine. What would yeah. your soul be ordered towards? Uh, in in what sense? Do you mean like what, uh, would, you, what like, would your soul be immediately ordered towards? I mean, we would argue that every every action, every contemplation, etc., in the afterlife would be ordered but, towards, directed towards God. I said immediate, immediately. What would it immediately be ordered towards? What What do you mean? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't really understand what you mean. I'm so, um, if I am, so the difference between immediate, immediate, the, yeah. the difference between directly and uh, through something else. So, would you be? So, what would? It, because you're saying that through this you get to the contemplation of God, but I'm asking, what are you immediately, what is your intellect immediately ordered towards? Uh, I'll let Byzantines go. Yeah, I would actually raise a big objection to this on a biblical grounds, that I think this is a sort of Gnostic view of what the afterlife is, at least the afterlife once Christ returns, because it seems that the body is no longer necessary here. The city of God in which we will all be rejoicing will not be necessary here. It That's will no longer I, be necessary that the lion lays down with the lamb. It seems that the, and also we even see, for example, in Isaiah 25, if I remember correctly, where they're on a mountain having a feast. And yes, I think that's symbolic of the Eucharist there. Um, but I think overall that it's very clear that there will be according to the a scripture, that there will be more pleasures than simply the immediate rejoicing in God, but also rejoicing in good things God created insofar as they are good because God created them and desires us to rejoice in them. Okay. So I'm going to answer that in a second. Mm -hmm. So, so Shia Alex, yeah, if, yeah. if you were enjoying a cup of wine in the afterlife, where yeah. is your intellect directly ordered towards? Um, I would still, I would still argue that like, you know, in the same sense that like, uh, it's the, it, like well, I would argue that it's not mutually exclusive to what your intellect would be directly ordered towards, regardless of the action of drinking wine, if that makes sense. So, that, the, the, I'm, the, I'm not really getting what you're saying. I, I just, yeah. I just want you clear without, without presuming where I'm going to go with this. If you are drinking a cup of wine, yeah. your intellect cannot have, cannot be the, perceiving multiple it, objects at once. What is the it could according to Scotus? Turn? Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm asking Shia. I'm going to mute you. This is notice. One more time. Last warning. Shia Alex, what is your mind immediately uh, ordered towards? Uh, you know, uh, no, I was going to make a joke. I'm not going to make a joke. Uh, uh, again, I would just, I would argue that it's um, God in the sense that it's not specific. Like it's not. Uh, immediately. Immediately. Oh, immediately, immediately. So immediately it would be to God, but immediately it would be to the cup of wine, correct? Um, yeah, sure, in a sense. Uh, so, okay, yeah, sense. So would it, is it, um, is it better to immediately or immediately perceive a certain thing? For example, is it better to um, see a friend in person or to see a friend friends who through a certain picture or to know him through a certain letter that he writes or, yeah. or such i would argue that in the context of the afterlife this is the entire crux of the of the sort of thing is what i was talking about the, that that concept is not that that mutual exclusivity is kind of destroyed by the afterlife through the perfection of the actions if that makes sense so that they so that so that they are by by um uh, what's the word for it? By participating in uh, this action or whatever, you know, drinking wine or carnal pleasures in whatever sense, 
in their highest perfect, in their most perfect sense, mm-hmm. that the mutual exclusivity uh, no longer exists because they're not being experienced to an inherently corrupt sense that they do. In the... it's, it's not. I'm not saying it's inherently corrupt. I'm not. No, no. I'm not I mean, accusing I'm, I'm, that. no, no. For clarification, I'm... I meant, I meant in the modern. So as we experience them in in uh, current reality in our current world. What I'm saying is that that cup of wine is not is not God Himself. Yeah, of course. So it, in in the fact that you are immediately uh, contemplating God rather than immediately contemplating God. Uh-huh. And that is a less perfect contemplation of God. I would argue you... that 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 presupposes, like I was saying, like that. I sorry, I'd argue that that presupposes that the actions uh, uh, still exist in, in a in a sense that they are, and you know, court of in a post fall sort of understanding that that uh, so to speak, for lack of a better term, that's to say that they um, that one would have to presuppose that there's still a mutual exclusivity between those two concepts, which I would argue that. Uh, a huge part of the Islamic idea of the afterlife is that, that that mutual exclusivity is is no longer there. But how could it not be mutually exclusive when you have the idea of an immediate and then immediate intellectual perception? I would argue, okay, I want to say two things actually about this. Someone also mm-hmm. argued, for example, um, that those of higher in heaven will tend to seek non-carnal pleasures like contemplating God, which is another uh, important point um, as well, that uh, uh, heaven and Islamic, and Islamic view is inherently tiered, right? Yes. And it's not like... Uh, not everyone has the exact same experience in yes, heaven. I would agree with that. Yeah. So, and that the higher tier, the higher tiers, the the least and least uh, immediate uh, perception there is, so to speak. That's what she mentioned. So, the higher tiers there are, the more direct contemplation you you go through, right? Yes. Okay. So we'd also argue that that would have to do with um, you know uh, judgment and things along those lines. I would argue as well. So you know. Um, for example, it's a kind of a privilege to have the ability to contemplate God in a more direct sense, right? Yes. Okay. That's all I wanted to say. In regards to okay. That. Byzantine Scotus, go ahead with your yeah, comments. I, I want to read, so I raised my objections earlier about that it okay. does seem we rejoice in physical things according to scripture. It also just came to mind that the saints right now are praying for us, which would seem according to your logic then that their mind is not set fully on God if they are praying for us right so add objections to i'll, I'll mm-hmm. deal with the second objection first mm-hmm. so insofar as we contemplate in the beatific vision the essence of god the essence of god is his intellect and in the intellect of god pre-exists all the forms of things therefore in contemplating the essence of god so also may we know according to our capacity all things so truly and really in contemplating the essence of god so also do we contemplate the things of this world. But that's not what scripture says. Scripture says that we have those things right in front of us. Publicist. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. So I, <laughs> I got paleo crap the laugh. So, um, so this gets us into questions of how we're going to read scripture. So especially, especially in prophetic books and with eschatology, um, the, prophetic literal sense is a term that's employed by the tradition that it may be the literal sense of the passage not even going into anagogy it may be the literal sense of the passage that that these things which are being spoken of in the form of words are actually themselves signs of other things without it having to be referent that that is the literal sense of the passage I agree with that to some extent. So, for example, in Isaiah 25, the passage I cited showing that we have a feast with God on on a mountain and that all the nations flow into Jerusalem. 
and that the feast is specifically of fat and wine. I don't think the feast has to really be fat and wine. I don't think it really even has to be a feast. I don't think they literally have to walk to Jerusalem. Those are all yep. clearly symbols. What I am saying, though, is the overall image. I mean, I, it just seemed a sense that God probably would set up his kingdom in Jerusalem when he returns, but it'd be fitting. But anyways, I, we don't know for certain that, right? But we do get a vision of a physical world, and we can affirm this because it is a dogma of the church that our yes. bodies physically rise from the dead. Yes. And it seems to be presenting a Gnostic vision. This is my real concern with the Thomistic yep. view of the beatific vision, is that we're having a Gnostic view of heaven where the only joy of heaven is intellectually contemplating God, that it defeats the point of the resurrection of the body. Okay. It makes the resurrection of the body only accidental to the joys of heaven rather than essential to it. I would also yeah. argue, so, for example... I'm pretty sure St. Thomas so, does actually I'll, say that it's accidental and not essential. So I will uh, first deal with uh, the biblical objection, then I need, still need to pull up a section from the Summa to deal with the other one. Mm -hmm. But I mean, how else are you going to describe heaven to... 6th, 7th century BC Jews and 1st, 2nd century uh, Greco-Romans. Like, how else are you supposed to describe it? Are you supposed to say, like, oh, in the, in the, you're not having a similitude of God, but in your intellect, you're with the Lumen Gratia being directly uh, unified would, with the divine essence. The are you supposed way, to describe it like that? You're just going to describe just it in terms of physical pleasures that they know. So it's the same idea when, when the biblical text describes God mm -hmm. as, for example, a rock. Mm -hmm. We can take it in its improper sense. We don't necessarily have to take it in its proper yeah. sense and stray from the literal sense of scripture. Why can't we take the resurrection of the body then in a metaphorical sense? Um, because the church teaches otherwise. But but the church teaches that because scripture teaches it, right? This would make the Correct. teachings of the church arbitrary then. The no, church but, no, has no, no, to no, teach no, it on the okay. basis okay. that it's okay, reasonably okay, okay. taught by scripture. So, so there's a scholastic dictum, which is that mm -hmm. the sense of scripture is the sense of the Catholic Church. Yeah. So, so when it comes to formally, um, formally forming, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. formally forming dogmas out of the material that is scripture, mm -hmm. we follow the sense of the Catholic Church. Yeah. So, so the Catholic Church places these reins on theologians because there mm -hmm. was a time when, um, when there were certain views of what type of body there was in the resurrection of the body mm -hmm. and how we are to take that word body because it is in scripture um i not not abundantly clear that that predication of body when it comes to uh the resurrection of the body is mm -hmm. to be taken in in a in one or two or three different senses because mm -hmm. that word body can be taken in many different senses but when we look at the resurrection of christ that especially provides exegetical evidence yeah to to take um it in the sense of a spiritual and glorified body which is how thomas is going to describe it and a lot of the fathers mm -hmm. as spiritual and glorified yeah and i would agree with that yeah but it still obviously has matter yes correct yeah yeah but it's not an animal body yeah okay so are we good? Yeah. I, I've been, I honestly, I have not read the second half of the supplementum, which mm -hmm. is going to be a lot of where this is covered. Yeah. So my, I am, I'm not, do you understand as my concern this, though, this that it seems at least at face value that the vision of beatitude that you're articulating could easily, I mean, where would you differ with the Gnostics, for example, on beatitude then? What do you mean? Where would I differ from the Gnostics on beatitude? What, would what, you, what proposition, I mean, what proposition of the Gnostic or Gnostics are you? 
Well, the idea basically that our only apprehension, that our primary apprehension of God here is this intellectual apprehension, besides the fact that you think it happens to be taught by scripture that the body rises, what role does the resurrected body actually play in the age to come? Why can't we just be disembodied souls rejoicing in God if our bodies aren't going to be sensing the world around us, it seems? Well, so why because... do we need renewed, he renewed heavens and a renewed earth? Well, because a a soul separated from the body isn't a complete person. The yeah. soul is the matter to the form of body. So yeah. the, the 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 body is something which is essential to the soul, essential in the sense for a complete person, not essential in the sense for um, yeah. existence. So when when Thomas talks about in his commentary on the sentences that whether whether a soul separated from body is a person is a hypostasis. He actually denies this proposition because it is an incomplete person. Yeah. When you, when you have the soul and it has to be upheld by a certain grace, which, uh, which is supplied by union with God and the beatific yeah. vision. But so the, is that so body the, the going to be doing anything besides just being part of the person? Is the body going to be doing anything? What do you yeah. mean? Like walking around and stuff? Yeah. I'm not sure. Well, it would seem right if the, if you think about your body walking, that would take away on your the degree to which you have an immediate uh, perception of God intellectually. And so it seems that the walking around of the body wouldn't be necessary. It seems any function of the body we could list would no longer be necessary in the age to come under your logic. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I mean, I, I, when, that when, seems not when, fitting then that the body has still has these functions in the age to come if they're no longer necessary functions. It seems well, it's not, it's not in, it's, it seems arbitrary. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it seems not fitting. Yeah, it seems yeah, arbitrary yeah. that we have a body. Well, when it comes to the no, no, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean it's, it would seem arbitrary that those functions are preserved despite the fact that they wouldn't be actualized. Yeah, yeah, but they'd yeah. only be served arbitrarily to send as like uh, just so that it can truly be said that it's that the body is being resurrected, if that makes sense. Well, I'm not an expert on eschatology, so, <laughs> so I'm, I know that. Yeah. Very, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, sometimes okay. something. It's. It really seems that Thomas's argument here is entirely philosophical, and that he's not arguing this on the basis of theology here, as anywhere I could tell. That his view of beatitude does well, seem to be drawn well, from yeah, the, from I mean, philosophy. I mean, yeah. There's there's going to be the Neoplatonic and yeah. the Aristotelian influence when it comes to the chief end of man in the in the beatific vision that's not uh -huh. a distinctively christian yeah. idea i do think there is all, every moment there right a direct perception of god we talk about for example in um how there were no longer need to be sun or moon which scotus actually takes that literally and argues against the pagans who think the heavens are eternal he argues that Basically. the heavens he argues that the heavens can corrupt which is aligned with modern yeah. science there um, but he argues that this Christ is the light of Christ, the glory of God is going to fill the entire city. And so the entire world will be filled with the glory of God. But the primary precept of the natural law, according to Scotus, is both to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself. So it seems that God wants us both to rejoice in him and other things of means to him, but also in those things directly. And I would argue, again, this is Scotus's 
distinction of the two affections of the will, that he wants us both to have the affectio commode, to love things for sake of benefit, that we're using yeah. them as some means towards something else, but also the affectio justitiae, to love the good in itself. And I think that God does want us, even in the eschaton, to rejoice in the good of created things insofar as they're created by God and in loving them, we're loving God. And I think that, that we, there wouldn't be a resurrection of the body and a resurrection of the world if that wasn't the case, I don't think that that would be necessary anymore. Yeah. If that, if it wasn't the case that God wants us to rejoice in created things. And I think that otherwise we fall into a semi-pagan view of the resurrection. Yeah, I need to, I definitely do need to look at the, I think where, where the answer might be found is the distinction that St. Thomas makes between the idea of an animal body and a spiritual body because this is this this has scriptural precedent and then we it's also look at the glorified christ, body of christ christ touched stuff though we saw he, yeah we saw him eat meals with people yes yeah yeah and christ also had the beatific vision as is affirmed by saint Thomas. i don't know if you affirm that christ had the beatific vision throughout his life yeah so, of I, mean, I, would, I would agree with that yeah there there's there's a great possibility that you're right and i'm just spouting off mere pagan's <laughs> pagan, pagan, pagan yeah. <laughs> the agility yeah, see, of the bodies see, of the blessed this is partly because i think my faith has been strengthened so much by the teachings of holy scripture that i think that my view it's funny that you come from a protestant background and you're jumping more into yeah. philosophy and i, I yeah. <laughs> and i'm jumping and just making my argument on the authority of scripture alone there <laughs> is a, well, um, i think there's really... i think there's also questions that have to come into because if if you will concede mm -hmm. um with with the distinction between the proper sense and improper sense and then the spiritual uh proper sense we we could Thomas's view can be reconcilable with scripture because let's be honest, as I said before, if you're going to describe the afterlife to a sixth century, sixth, seventh century BC Jewish people, you're going to have to use a lot of crude analogies from stuff that they're used to. So when well, their corn and wine and oil increase like that, that is, I don't, that, I don't that think is they almost use that. that that's a reality, which is signifying um, yeah. through anagogy um, the, the super abundant uh, yeah. good, which will be in the beatific vision uh -huh. or however you want to put it. Yeah. And as I said, right, for example, I don't think we literally have to be drinking wine with God in heaven, but I do actually think we, we might be partaking of the Eucharist in heaven. So I think these are symbols of the Eucharist. You, you um, think that, be... that, that just a pious opinion of mine. I don't know if that could be totally wrong on that, but it seems to me that there's a lot there of images is, of the Eucharist um... in heaven. There is an interesting commentary. I'm not going to read the verse. I don't think the verses. I mean, the verses used for the conversation, but it is more or less what I've said. But there is a very interesting commentary on the specific verse in the Quran where the person says, "This is Ayatollah Puya." He says, "The practice of piety in this life is nothing but training the soul for the upward march, heading towards perfection in the life hereafter." Which is important to note in that sense of, uh, like I said, the perfection of pious actions to um, their existence in the afterlife. That's all I want to mm -hmm. add. See, so we got, this, this truth is so evident that it even appears within false religions, Christian. So, <laughs> and, and, and what am I supposed to say now? What am I supposed to say now to all my buddies, dude, who are always talking about you know riding quads and stuff and you know fishing up in heaven? I mean, what am I? Uh -huh. You're like, you're like, well, you, you're not gonna feel it, right? Like, yeah. What, what, am I, what am I gonna say to these guys, dude? You know, I, I will say, Christian, that I actually do think that Saint Thomas's description of beatitude is good insofar as it describes the intermediate state until the second coming well well saint saint thomas is it 
with your with your question about quads and such he, <laughs> while, while he yeah. affirms uh, he affirms that the spiritual body is impassable he still actually affirms that there is uh, some sensation in in the afterlife especially when it comes to um the, the vision of god that it will actually be a uh, a more complete uh vision with the uh intellect with the visual faculties being restored so there- um, the, what was I going to say? There is, um, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, I was going to say Christian, uh, every funeral, you know, there's always going to be that one person like, Oh, don't be, don't be sad. He's looking down at you smiling. And Chris is going to say, no, he's not. That would actually subtract from his experience. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not what I said. That's not what I said. So, so let's go, let's go over this again. Yeah. Okay. She Alex, she Alex, let's, let's do a brief, uh, brief, uh, dialogue right here. Is the intellect, is the intellect yeah. and the essence of God. Are they um, are are they composed of as parts of of God? Or are they one and the same? Well, not one and oh, the same in the sense of an identity mean, of definition. The intellect of God, you mean? Yeah, when it comes to the intellect of God, and then his, his essence, essence is his intellect his essence. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, does God know uh, all future possibilities and actualities? Uh, uh yes, in a sense, yeah. So in God's knowledge of things, is the perfect form of those things uh, within the divine intellect? Um, so do you mean like, it, like let's, let's say, for example, uh, is the perfection of drinking wine within God's intellect? Is that what you're asking me? I guess, yes. Okay, <laughs> then sure. And in that specific context, yes. In the same sense that any, okay. any possible future contingency, actualized or otherwise, would be. Okay. So in our in our vision of the divine essence, then we would also perceive these perfections of created forms and also um, those things which are possible and actual. Correct. Um, what, what do you mean by perceive in this context? Do you mean like we just uh, like I mean, like, do you think we, we would um, like there would be a, do you think there would be a distinguishing between the two of them? Yeah. So can, are you going to perceive the essence of God without perceiving uh, also the divine knowledge? Okay. Um, no, we we wouldn't say we would say obviously that those are not uh, like you know separable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I would also. So but ergo, I would also ergo, that... it follows that you, your dead relatives, can look down on you, um, <laughs> <laughs> because because that that knowledge of 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 simple intelligence, yeah. and and the knowledge of his decree is present within the divine intellect, which you are perceiving in the beatific vision. But I'd also argue that you're perceiving it in a you're not perceiving it in the like uh in the same way you're perceiving it as you would if you actively take part in it. In the same way that God yes. also has unactualized uh contingencies that will never be actualized in his divine intellect that you would be yes. possibly be experiencing, but not in the same sense that if you were actually experiencing those actualized contingencies. Yes. So there's a distinction which is made between um acquired knowledge and then uh, infused knowledge. Which, yeah 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 so we wouldn't be acquiring the in, in the same sense that it like experiential knowledge in the same sense we would say that uh actually we would say that god has experiential knowledge so get trolled mohammedian by the way man i gotta go boys okay right. i have a i have a show i'm supposed to do a show tomorrow on word faith at on meaning of catholic and so but it's not till a little bit later but i gotta wake up early and do some yeah. stuff but this was awesome man i like your stuff christian and it was Thank cool. You. Of course, I always like Byzantine Scotus. I mean, he's the man. Yeah. <laughs> and it was awesome to meet you. 
Uh, yeah. I, yeah, it was yeah. awesome, man. This whole yeah. thing has been real cool. You got a cool thing going. And so Thanks. thank you, man. Thank, thank you. you. No, thank you. I appreciate yeah. it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for coming on. Of course, man. God bless you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Hey, see you. Yeah, bye. Okay. Who are we inviting to the stream now? Uh, I'm going to reload again. because I'm getting lag again. So I'm just going to reload again. Does that make sense? Did you hear what I said? Yeah. Yeah, I heard okay. what you said. Can we see? Maybe we should get a um, Orthodox guy on here next. <laughs> Why not? See. We'll we'll get him on the filioque. Yeah. Do any Orthodox people want to come on? Yeah, Elijah Hallberg. Let's see. Do you want to bring him in? Yeah, I just put He's the cool. streamer link in there. Yeah, I'm back. Uh, okay. He's doing like uh, five hours of streaming every night. What is it? So what, I, I Elijah, think I think, <laughs> I think it'll be better if Christian explains this. I'll let Christian explain it. Uh, Christian. Uh, what is his intellect his like his knowledge so what do you mean what does it mean by that in that context just because i know the answer but i thought you'd be better explaining it than i am oh what's his intellect like his knowledge yeah. yeah yeah so when we talk about the divine intellect that's in a sense analogous um because god isn't like perceiving forms like we are outside of nature uh but um when we're talking about the intellect of god we're talking about it in an active sense of um, of a natural knowledge that he has. So yeah, when I when I'm talking about the intellect, I'm talking about knowledge. Let me find let me find a good example from Kitabo. Oh, Aaron Lagu might come on in a few days. Yeah, sure. Elijah. Elijah. Good to see you. Okay, debate me on the on the filioque right now. Right now. Don't you know that the filioque was invented in the 500s at the Council of Toledo? You absolute, you absolute unresearched Catholic. I think I think Athanasius. Swine. I think Athanasius <laughs> actually wrote the Athanasian Creed and included the filioque. <laughs> really? What What makes you think that? Like I'm you joking. I, I don't that? actually think. Do you, uh, Byzantine Scotus? Right. Do you actually think that? No, I don't. I want to know if anyone's <laughs> willing to defend the um, thesis of a number of Carolingian theologians that the Greeks removed the filioque from their creed. <laughs> <laughs> I, That's awesome. Yeah. I'll defend but yeah, that. Um, I would argue okay, that, yeah, defend that def defends that all the Greek manuscripts we have are forgeries and also all their biblical manuscripts are forgeries. And that's why the um, Johannine comma isn't in the Greek manuscripts based. But yeah, <laughs> I would argue, I would argue that like, um, by what it means by, by what he means by intellect is what's talked about on the chapter, this for uh, Anon zero zero on the chapter of on divine knowledge in, I kind of think it's the on divine knowledge in Kitabo Tawhid by, also do the same sort of concept. There you go. Okay, where is it? Go. God's knowledge, right here. Here we go. And I recommend everyone go read on uh, divine knowledge from uh, Bartholomew Masteries. If you want to read hundreds of pages of Latin, I posted a screenshot of it in the Discord. Oh, read this book. Read this book, Christian. Read this book. Read it. I'm gonna the beat you with it. Of the divine unity. I've sent this to you. That's why I DM'd it to you. That's the oh one I yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's one by Saduk. Yeah. Oh, I, I need to download that and put it in my reader. It's um, you can do that. It's also um, just on the website. You can just do it by like so the way it's organized, just by like chapter by chapter. It's not like a PDF. It's okay. like um, it's kind of like Aquinas.cc in a sense. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. In yeah. A so sense. what but do we what do we degree on? on phone, so. What do we degree do we dis uh, disagree on Byzantine Scotus? What do we? Here's a question that I think: What is the purpose of the will if the will, if judgment is located within the intellect? It seems to me that almost everything that the will 
that's important about the will and scotism is simply assimilated to the intellect within Thomism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. So um, I actually have a quote from Thomas on this one. Surprise, you know, I want to point out while you're looking it up, I just want to point out one thing. When you first talked about uh, Thomas, like, oh, do you want to hear about Thomas? And Tom I think this one of the first day I was in your Discord. I thought you meant the, the apostle. So I was incredibly confused for like two hours of what you meant. The, here I we go. You meant the, the, the apostle Thomas. Christian defend that St. Thomas Aquinas and the apostle Thomas are the same person in all, these, in all the writings <laughs> of the Summa come from the first century. Based. based. It's like pseudo Dionysius. Yeah, he, he quotes Dionysius because he was friends with him. <laughs> okay. Just, yeah, the, re I, the reason Dionysius looks like he's sixth century is because he was compiling quotes from the Summa to recreate the writings. Yeah, what I think you have <laughs> wrong here. Why can't I'm I? I'm reloading this? again. And I'm gonna pull up. I don't have Scotus on hand. I don't want to go search through the Summa, but I want to pull up Bonaventure to defend Scotus's view here. <laughs> Bonaventure's think, a doctor of the Church. No, I think you. Uh, I think the problem here is that you're misunderstanding um, the nature of free will and the will in in Thomism. Yeah. Because the way that you're viewing it is that the oh she Alex is I'm gonna add him back. Yeah. I reloaded because Yeah, yeah. So um in, in Thomism you kind of phrase it like the the will is just uh following and uh always after the judgment of the intellect and that's just what Th Thomas believes. But that's not really the case as it appears in Summa Theologiae, Prima Pars, question 83, article 3, where he says uh, the question of whether the free will is an aptitive power or cognitive, which you would say that Thomas believes is a cognitive. But he says the proper act of free will is choice. For we say that we have free will because we can take one thing while refusing another. And this is okay. the choice. Therefore, we must consider the nature of free will by considering the nature of choice. Now, two things concur in choice. Notice two things concur in choice yeah. right there. One on the part of the cognitive power, the other on the part of the aptitive power. On the part of the cognitive power, counsel is required, which is judgment by which we judge one thing to be preferred to another. On the part of the aptitive power, it is required that the appetite should accept the judgment of the counsel. So really, the will in Thomas's view isn't pure, uh, purely following after judgment, okay. but it is the it is the concurrence of the aptitive and the uh, and, and the judicial faculty. So would you say then that something in some sense can be simply the result of the will choosing one thing over another? So can it be that right if there's a piece of chocolate cake sitting in front of me and a piece of apple pie sitting in front of me that I can choose the chocolate cake simply because the will prefers the chocolate cake over the apple pie or does there have to be some reason behind it? Can we have a purely? Um, can, can, can the will just? Can the will simply choose between alternatives? If there's two, if there's multiple goods. So you're asking about whether, whether, yeah. whether the will, whether the will can exist without judgment. No, so we would say, for example, the bond of entrance goes that judgment is that choice between one or the other. That it's not. So Bonaventure distinguishes here counsel from judgment, right? So he says, um, here we go, this is um, itinerarium 3-4. He says, the function of the power of choice is found in deliberation, judgment, and desire. 
Um, so he's gonna have here we go. Oh, is this a deliberation? I'm thinking of. Never mind. Deliberation and yeah, consists in inquiring, which is better this or that. But um, so he's gonna choose between better, but then fundamentally, one choice is chosen over the other because of the will. Prefers that one over the other. Hopefully okay. that makes sense. My explanation. Yeah, 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 I think yeah, that was... yeah. So, so you're asking what you're asking whether the uh, the choice can occur without the action of the rational faculty. Well, I would, I would say that the rational faculty is the will, but the will's is so. According to Aristotle in Metaphysics Book Nine, the difference between a natural power and a rational power is that a natural power always moves to its end, while a rational power has the free choice to choose between multiple different ends. And Scotus says then that the intellect is the natural power within the mind, and the rash and this will is the rational power in the mind because things enter through the senses the intellect yeah. contemplates those things and learns about them basically and that's done necessarily it's just as necessary that your intellect contemplates that as that you breathe or that your stomach digests food right so you can have some control over it but that control is still from your will right if you want to stop breathing you can will to stop to try and stop breathing but your will is still naturally uh -oh. moving towards that end uh -oh. We're trying to make Christian a Scotus here. No. Oh, right. are, are, we, are we arguing for the priority of the will over the I, intellect? I, I'm trying to argue for the rationality of the will. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. That, yeah, so yeah the, but, but so if the, you... So, the, so um, F, anyways, right it's the will then is what chooses between things. The intellect has no choice but to move yeah. to its end. Okay. Well, the intellect just knows, but with the will, you're actually really following through and choosing. Yeah. Okay, but actually, when when Thomas Thomas treats this question, the second half of this, mm -hmm. that's very useful. So yeah. therefore, Aristotle leaves it in doubt whether the choice belongs principally to the aptitive or the cognitive power, since he says that choice is either an aptitive intellect or an intellectual appetite. But Ethics three three he inclines to it being an intellectual appetite when he describes choice as a desire proceeding from counsel. But the reason of this is because the proper object of choice is the means to the end, and this as such is in the nature of that good, which is called useful. Wherefore, since good as such is the object of the aptitive, it follows that choice is principally an act of the aptitive power, and thus free will is an aptitive power. Right. Hmm. So you're saying, but isn't it an aptitive power? Isn't it simply the appetite of the intellect then? Because Scotus does acknowledge that the mind so, is in some sense an appetite of the intellect, but he says it's primarily a rational faculty. So from I, what I, I understand, not, doesn't kidding. so from what ahead. I understand of Scotus, and I think he follows Anselm in this, doesn't he think that the intellectual appetite has a, and because there are two of these, it's indeterminate which one has a precedent unless there is a will to choose between the two options. Uh, between the intellectual appetite towards happiness and the intellectual appetite towards uh, justice? Yeah, I think that comes in, but I think that's distinct mm. from his overall, fr from this point about rationality. I think his two affections is a distinct but related point. Right. I was going to say, it, it, I think it might be a little related because at the very yeah, least, if, it's, if the intellect is uh, prior in some sense, it might be prior in the sense that it is giving, um, you know, yeah. an indeterminate uh, pull. But it's not oh, yeah. prior in the sense that it is doing, it's determining the action. I think the mm -hmm. will is the thing that's coming in later yeah. and picking whether or, and picking between justice and its happiness. And yeah, yeah and this is mm -hmm. why it, it has this, uh, it has this power to kind of like, uh, 
make the decision to make the decision. Um, yeah. 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 So I, I mean, I would, I would be in line with that too. Right. Because, yeah. because what, what, what it's, so the intellect verifies something is true. So obviously from sensation, right. let's say I have this cup of water. Um, my sensory faculties bring it in. The passive intellect is uh, forming it as matter. And then my active intellect formalizes that into the object. Right. And in, in the fact that it turns it from potency of matter from my passive intellect through the sensory faculties to um, the actuality of form. And then my, my the faculty of judgment is what's going to... Uh, to to judge whether it's true or not and then the then the affections come in to where it's perceived as from a good or an evil mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm not sure why why that's uh, a contestable um contestable well it seems then though that you're simply following what your intellect has deter- necessarily no. what your intellect has determined to be the highest good no, not well, not necessarily well, because because the appetite is the determinant factor of whether the, the mm. choice goes through or not with what the intellect apprehends is true. Right. So one thing to consider though is that um, so the doctrine of the tub of two appetites would basically state that um, there is a, a capacity to recognize something as the good and something and the ability to recognize something as one's own happiness. Uh, so f- uh, let's just take uh, the drinking of water. Um, there is a sense in which drinking water is good, not in, uh, because your proper function is to hydrate yourself, but there is a sense in which it is it causes you happiness and joy because you kind of take a, a certain pleasure in drinking water. And, and basically, uh, because those two more or less uh, line up, you don't really have much of a reason to deliberate, you know, unless you kind of have a higher joy in drinking Coca-Cola over water or something like that. Um, but because there's this indeterminacy that goes on, I think the, it, the intellect doesn't really uh, determine an outcome so much as it determines options of, po- of potential outcomes. And it's, the w- and it's the will that has priority in actualizing those, poten- those uh, potentials. Here you go. Christian, if you want to pull it up on the screen, I got the spot from SCOTUS here. We, so we could go through that maybe a little oh, bit. Oh, no, you're going to read SCOTUS? Isn't this like the infamously difficult thing to do? Oh, great. Yeah. Was, <laughs> this is from his questions on the metaphysics of Aristotle. This is from the, the collection of writings of SCOTUS about the will and morality. So here we go. Let me see if I can go through and find within SCOTUS where his actual argument is. Wait, what? 45 what, uh, minutes later. So it's uh, metaphysics 9. Yeah, he's talking. He's just He's commentating on Ooh. metaphysics 9 here. Where in metaphysics nine? I don't know. The verse he's quoting from Aristotle is: "It is clear some potencies will be non-rational and others will be with reason. Hence, all arts or productive sciences um, um, are potencies." Okay, give me one second, and then Mm -hmm. read that again, and I will try to figure out which one it is. Oh, Uh, rational and irrational potencies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. There you go. And what did you say? What was the was the sentence? So it is clear some potencies will be non-rational, but others will be with reason. Hence, all the arts or productive sciences are potencies. Oh, that's just the first. That's just the first sentence. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Uh, uh, metaphysics nine. Yeah, yeah. Metaphysics nine. Um, it's under lecture two, so it's going to be 
1046 A36. Yeah, I'll just sort of read through, but try and skip over objections so we can figure out. So he's asking, is the difference Aristotle assigns between the rational and irrational potencies appropriate? Namely, that the former are capable of contrary effects, um, but the latter produce uh, but one effect. So we, I'm, I'll skip over the objections here for now. Mm-hmm. Um, here we go. All right. To the contrary, uh, is the philosopher's statement in the text cited above. All right. You should you should like that he's just citing Aristotle as his proof. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So as for the question, granting the distinction be well made, we must first see how it is understood, and then uh, what its rationale is. Right, so how is the distinction to be understood? So as to the first, keep in mind that any act of potency whatsoever, be it a power to act in a certain way or an ability to produce um, something, is such so long as its nature remains unchanged, it only does what it can do for itself. Frig frigidity, for remaining frig uh, frigidity, for example, cannot warm or draw heat from itself. Um, if it is not this sort of agent, so basically it has to have that power in order, and it's always going to do that then if it's a natural power. Um, no matter the circumstances might be, if something associated with it peripherally, for instance, could produce some heat in something, it never could be frigidity qua frigidity that could do this, right? So an ex another example of this I've heard is that it seems like the sun, for example, can both dry clay and melt ice. So in one case, it's getting rid of water. In one case, it's adding water. What is it doing? But it's, of course, doing it in different respects, right? It's producing the same effect of heating both. And that's moving that water through these states. It's not actually producing different effects in each one. Yeah, it has so that's a, just a difference. It has two active potencies, basically. Well, I think Scotus would say it's a singular activity it's doing that is affecting mm. the objects in different ways. But he's saying it, the sun, for example, couldn't do something contrary to heating it. Well, that's, right. that's just the, the effect of uh, matter being disposed to the reception of form in a certain way. Because yeah. an, active, an active potency is going to affect a certain form on a certain thing. But mm. if the matter is, is disposed in a certain way, then the reception of the form will be different. Mm -hmm. yes. yes. So, oh, so all he's saying here basically is that something a natural power can't do opposite things. That's what he's saying. Right. Whereas the yeah. intellect is the sort of thing which uh, can do opposite things. Well, I think he's going to he's going to argue the intellect can only reach its end while the will can choose opposite opposite things. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, which is what makes the will an act. Well, well, uh, well, an active potency rather than a passive. Well, potency. actually, yeah. the well. So for for Saint Thomas, the the uh, the intellect is never going to judge something as true unless there's a certain impediment which is placed in it. So all men desire to know, obviously, and um, for example, all men are going to choose what they believe to be good, uh, even even when um, that is a that that's a false choice due to some impediment. So I don't. So I'm just trying to think this out out loud, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know yeah. if that adds anything yeah, well, to the conversation. Basically, he's saying rationality is the at least this, this article. I think he's saying basically that rationality is the ability to choose opposites because natural things don't simply choose between opposites, right? Mm. So, um, the sun it can simply heat stuff, it can light stuff, but it, the sun can't make something cold, is what he's saying. Okay. It, it, yeah. 
there are yeah uh, there are outcomes which we can a priori uh, just reject um, so for example we cannot God could bring about a state of affairs where he picks Israel to be his nation or he could bring about a state of affairs where he picked the Canaanites uh, for example <laughs> if he so chose it's a matter of grace mm -hmm. But, there, but we know for a fact, a priori, that God wouldn't do something akin to, uh, I don't know, uh, create a world where uh, just everybody is predestined to be tortured from the outset and no one has any choice otherwise. I think that one is just an exercise of uh, pure arbitrary maliciousness, whereas the other ones, at the very least, have some sort of redemptive quality, which kind of at least makes them worth considering. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to see where he gets to talking about the will here. Hold on. This oh. is the problem with Scotus. Is he just goes on and on and on. Oh, yeah. Trust me. I understand. It's what odd because... What philosopher doesn't? <laughs> Let's see. Let's see what Thomas covers Oh, here we go. So he, he, I'll, I'll read the next article. Maybe we pick up from here. So he says, as for the second point, Aristotle seems to have understood the distinction to stem from the fact that a natural form is a principle for making only one pair of opposites, that which resembles itself naturally, just as this is this and not its opposite. So basically, the only opposite we can determine is that it's not its opposite. Right. But a form that is in the intellect, in the way of knowledge, informs the mind, is a principle for representing opposites by an intentional likeness, just as knowledge is a virtual likeness of opposites. Medical science is both the knowledge of health and sickness. All right, so are, he's basically saying these aren't real opposites, basically. Yeah. In that sense. All right, where does he talk about the will then? Okay. It seems like it's going to be down here... Oh, he Later. here we go. All right. Oh, here we go. A distinction in itself, nature and will. All right. So opinion of Scotus. As for this second article, then, we must first investigate the distinction in itself and then see what Aristotle thought about it. All right. So I could not read this except for the notes that Walter gives to help us navigate this. Or he says, mm -hmm. So as for the first, keep in mind the primary distinction of active potency stems from the radically different way they elicit their operations. All right. For if we can somehow distinguish them because one acts to this, another regarding to that, a distinction is not immediate. All right, where does he get to the will then? All right. Uh, for either the potency of itself is determined to act, so that so far as it itself is concerned, it cannot fail to act when not impeded from without, or it is not so determined, but can perform this or that act or its opposite or can either will or not act at all a potency of the first sort is called nature whereas the second one is called will so i think what he's getting at here is he's saying right that the sun it doesn't get to choose whether or not it's going to heat stuff if the sun is operating it's always going to heat stuff right yeah. if we have um a block of ice it's always going to feel cold the ice can't decide to stop feeling cold but the will can choose whether or not to act. So it can choose opposites of whether or not it is going to act. So even just in the case of there's a piece of cake in front of us, it's not morally wrong to eat the cake, but it's also not necessarily morally good to eat the cake. We get to freely choose whether or not we're going to eat the cake simply on the basis of our will choosing it. And I think that's what he's getting at here. Okay. Uh, I, I still don't get how, because Thomas is affirming the ability for opposite choices to happen. Yeah. Why would I that be in contradiction I... with it being a, uh, an, an, a, uh, oh my, some dog is not happy. A, um, a, a 
what, what am I trying to think of? The word words don't work right now. The appetitive, oh, yeah, the appetitive faculty and its um, desiring towards the object of judgment from the intellect. Well, he's saying it's not just on the judgment of the intellect. It's freely within the will itself that chooses. Yeah, the appetite can can assent or not assent. Yeah. Yeah, so I, he, I don't think there's a disagreement uh, here. Okay, so you're saying basically that within the will, the will can then choose to assent or not assent to what the intellect presented? Yes. Okay. Perhaps. Um, as maybe you could clarify a little bit more what you mean by the appetite then. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something. Um, oh my, this is a weird setup. So <laughs> when it comes to the aptitive faculty, let me... Oh, there's my cursor he's there's a new set much... there's a new shia alex set now i just that's what i was he's doing gonna, here we go you're like your third change <laughs> let me sorry it's gonna take me a second to pull this up it's prima pars probably because i'm gonna be honest with you um the um the the uh, anthropology is not one of my strong suits, and I've been reading a lot more about it recently to try to try to catch up. Uh, I'm gonna reload one more time. Yeah, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't fix again, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna deal with it. But it makes me like 15 seconds behind, so it's super annoying. Oh, okay, yeah. So when it comes to what the appetite is, I don't see a I don't see a definition which Thomas gives directly. But the appetite is going to be the <laughs> faculty wherein our someone our, our in the souls chat are reaching out to the good. Oh, De Veritate, question 24. Oh my, that's going to be like 20 questions. <laughs> yeah. This is the problem with SCOTUS. There's a giant like body of different points there before we got to what he was talking about. Yeah, De Veritate is great. Do you uh, mind if I ask a question really quick? Yeah, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Do the fathers touch on this uh, question at all about the will and the uh, intellect? I do think they do. I think St. Maximus um, on his whole thing about the gnomic will gets very close to what Scotus is getting at of the will as a rational power. Um, but this is just from a general engagement with Maximus. I haven't delved in depth with his writings on the will to affirm in certain that he agrees fully with Scotus or at least in principle here with Scotus. I do know that Maximus, by way of St. John Damascene, was very influential on Western views of the will. Mm -hmm. I um, mean, I think also Augustine is cited here a few times, but I think that um, Damascene actually tended to be a little more influential in a lot of views of the will than Augustine was, from what I understand about this. I, I remember reading a while ago a, blogs, uh, a blog post by Phaser. He actually conceded that Augustine, to some extent, yeah. was, a, was a, a soft voluntarist. Yeah, and J John Milbank has conceded that late Augustine is a voluntarist. Mm. Um, in case, just as a, as a note to, to Christian while he's looking for things, in case you're curious where we stand, uh, this book, this is the first book about coffee, it basically says the Thomist view that intellect is considered. That's what it establishes. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. <laughs> but yeah, it's established. In fact, he actually... Well, the very first, the very first hadith and the and the most important Shia hadith book. Basically, the summary of it is God creates intellect, 
and gives intellect the faculty of speaking. Now, it doesn't mean this, it's not saying like literally God at some point created some sort of anthropomorphic thing called intellect. That's not the, it's kind of speaking in a metaphorical sense here. And what it says is it's basically a conversation between God and intellect where God is basically just praising intellect and how it's his favorite creation ever and how it's how the creation will learn to know him and, uh, uh, oh, this is. I, I, I actually have a question, uh, if you don't mind me asking, about um, about your theology. Um, yeah, sure. Um, how are you, how do you guys feel about creatio ex nihilo in the sense that the world had an absolute beginning in uh, had an absolute temporal beginning, or are you guys more open to something like any an eternal or perpetual creation, a la Aristotle? Well, according to Saint Thomas, he actually has a um, de de mundo. Eternate, I think it's called, something like that. My Latin's terrible. But uh, on the eternity of the world, where he discusses this, and he says by reason alone, we actually cannot determine whether the earth is eternal or not, but only insofar as it's an article of faith in the church. So this would be more of a magisterial question, whether I'd be open to it or not. But St. Thomas argues that mm -hmm. creation um, in time or beginning of time or however you want to say it, um, because there's no succession in God. The beginning of succession was... Uh, yeah, that, that is... that. Because I, I, I've all, creation, creation would be the beginning of succession because there's no succession yeah. before creation. I, yeah, that's yeah, Bonaventure's I, 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 argument. Yeah, I, I'd argue uh, that, um, uh, just to kind of answer it a little briefly, I, I couldn't say too much philosophically because I haven't philosophically like, researched it much, but I'd argue there's great textual evidence of a pretty specific creation in ex, ex nihilo, both in the I, Hadith corpus and in the Quran. I, I see, but you would yeah. okay. So by dint of revelation, you would concede. Yeah, but I, I haven't philosophically yeah. examined the premises enough I, to say I, I have an issue with either way. If that makes I, sense. I know in the Islamic tradition there is kind of a more of an openness to it. I know Ibn Taymiyyah himself. Ibn Taymiyyah, yeah, Ibn Taymiyyah rejects creation ex nihilo, which is funny because none of his modern followers do. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but yeah, he does, uh, and he's sort of. I would argue that so. Um, uh, he there's a lot of so he, he sort of exists at re, and inherently in a reactionary sense he doesn't exist in of himself like he's inherently existing in reaction to other things happening mm. and his belief regarding creation ex nihilo is one of the things that during his life he was like heavily heavily like people were like this guy is an absolute idiot <laughs> like people were just not like I would say like the Sufis especially and the Asharis have a pretty more harsh like uh, like this guy's a just a dummy for not holding to them because they're very occasionalist for example mm -hmm. so i think that will lead to them like uh and their view regarding it having to be much more um creation ex nihilo in their view yeah I, I think in the christian muslim and jewish tradition uh, i think pretty much all of us agree with some outsiders i'm sorry that pretty much all of us agree there is a beginning in time whether we could prove yeah. it philosophically or not but I think there's always just been a minority in each camp that has tried to sneak in the eternality of the world. And we just generally all agree they're heretics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 yeah I, I, I'd say so, too. And also, like, for example, like to give an example of like a Hadith, there's many Hadith that say things like God saw, at least in terms of matter, in terms of like the material existence of the world. Uh, which kind of gets into like the debate of what you'd consider the world in this context to even mean. Mm -hmm. But in like a material sense, there's many hadith that say, for example, God was a seer before there was anything to see, or God could hear before there was anything okay, to hear. But, uh, my, my, yeah. my question is, um, how are we defining eternality? Uh, I would, uh, I think I would say eternality should be defined as uh, whether or not there was a first point in time or 
maybe to use uh, something a little more scholastic, um, there was a first. Uh, uh, a, there was a first uh, thing that was actualized from potency, and uh, that would have been like the like the first uh, substance or entity which led on to other substances and entities yeah, emerging from that. Obviously, like, there's uh, going to have to be an actualization of, of potency. But if we're defining um, eternality as containing uh, some, something which is existent in all moments of time, then yeah, because time was cre created as in succession concomitantly mm -hmm. with, with the world. So I think it's a, a bit more of, it's a bit of a difficult question, honestly, because I think yeah. it comes down to how we're defining eternality. Is in one sense we can speak of the Earth as an eternal. Scare quotes. Don't clip me on this one. Eternal <laughs> in the in the yeah. sense that it's um, existed in all moments of successive time, mm -hmm. but in another sense of absolute eternity. Um, then, then no, that's that's silly because then the the creation would be without succession. Yeah, yeah. I get what you mean there. Okay, are we going to go right. back to the will, or are you guys... Yeah. Oh, no, 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 I'm yeah, sorry. Let's go We're back talking to the will. Eternality yeah. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. To the will. Okay, I think this, this there section is, some, is really... there, there is some relation between the two, though, because some because obviously everyone here is a proponent of divine simplicity, and yet people who disagree with our doctrine usually say, you can't really have creation ex nihilo without uh, yeah. uh, with simplicity, but I think we can all agree that that's bullshit for various yeah, yeah. reasons. Besides Elijah, by the way, Elijah's EO, but he's quiet. But I think oh, I'm yeah. like your boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like divine simplicity, more like Thomistic Latin nonsense. Yeah, yeah. yeah pretty much. <laughs> we, so, we, we should get William Ockham to join the chat. Well, if you get a nominalist in here, William Ockham, that I have, somebody, somebody actually recommended that I bring you on. So, uh, the, the well, books, I've seen that guy on Twitter before, I think. He, he's, he's a cool. good guy. He, he's really more of a scotist, but he's based. <laughs> the books, the books that I have, Francis uh, that talk about divine simplicity technically predate the books that Christian have that talk about divine simplicity. So you could also say it's a, uh, I don't know, Arabic uh, nonsense too, if you want to, because technically, you know, 800s is before 1100. So well, I, I mean, by 200 years. I mean, Augustine of Hippo himself. No, oh, come on, that's <laughs> no. Everything that is in God, everything that is in God is God. Yeah. <laughs> base, base. Uh, or I guess oh. you could say, I don't know, first John, God is love, or something like that too. So I suppose we got me in that again. Oh yeah. Actually, Exodus, I am who I am. God Based. man. You got me beat on this one. Okay. <laughs> so here is this is from De Veritate twenty four one, I think. I'm not gonna scroll all the way up there. Just wall of text. If the term <laughs> is taken literally, free choice denotes an act. But by usage, it has been transformed to mean the principle of the act. So notice, free choice is the principle of a certain act. Mm -hmm. When we say that, man, that a man has free choice, we do not mean that he is actually judging freely, but that he has within himself that by which he can judge freely. So it's a certain um, active potency or power, which is in man. Consequently, if the act of judging freely should contain anything which goes beyond the capacity of a power then it will designate a habit or a power perfected by some habit. You don't really need to understand that, but we'll keep going. To get angry with moderation, for instance, implies something which goes beyond the capacity of the irascible power. For the irascible power cannot moderate the passion of anger by itself unless it is perfected by a habit by means of which there is impression upon it the moderation of reason. If, however, to judge freely should not imply anything that exceeds the capacity of the power, free choice will not designate anything but a power without any further addition. 
Just as to get angry does not mean to go beyond the capacity of the irascible power. And for this reason, its proper principle is a power and not a habit. Because notice the logic here, that entire wall of text right there after I initially explained, is going to be Thomas describes a habit as something between power and act. So it's, 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 it's something which um, orders the soul towards a certain uh, choice or actualization of a certain power. Now it is clear that to judge, if nothing is added, does not go beyond the capacity of a power, because it is the act of a power, reason by its own nature, without requiring the addition of any habit. Similarly, what is added in the adverb freely does not exceed the scope of the power. For something is said to be done freely inasmuch as it is in the power of the one doing it. But the fact that something is under our control is in us as the consequence of an operative power, not of a habit. The power is the will. Okay, so all that wall of text is just providing definitions for his conclusion. Free choice, accordingly, does not designate a habit, but the power of will or reason, one as subordinated to the other. Thus, the act of choosing proceeds from one of them in subordination to the other in accordance with what the philosopher says. Choice is in the aptitive on the part of the intellectual power or understanding on the part of the aptitive. It is clear, too, from what has been said, why some are led, were led to hold that free choice is a habit. For some have held this on account of the addition which free choice makes to will and reason, the subordination of the one to the other. But this cannot have the character of a habit if the term is taken in the proper sense. For a habit is a quality by which a power is inclined to act. Others, considering the faculty with which we judge freely, have said that free choice is a power modified by a habit. But, as has already been said, judge freely does not go beyond the nature of the power. So it just establishes that it's a power, though, right? Yeah. But it still doesn't seem to clarify whether or not specifically what SCOTUS is interested in, if, if it's a rational power. What do you mean by rational power? So that's what SCOTUS is saying, that rational power is its ability to choose between alternatives. So the ability. Not, not, okay. Okay. So, so let me let me make the main comparison, right? Is it like, um, for example, our our breathing, right? Where we simply we don't choose to breathe, right? We simply continue breathing. We can will to stop breathing, but that's our just naturally our breathing continues as it is. Or is it like our ability to choose between things that's not necessarily require necessarily following from the natural power itself? Okay repeat that again in one second sorry i was having to yeah. send the link for william of Ockham. yeah so basically uh, is the question whether or not it's a power like um like a habitual power or is it a deliberative power well, by habitual it, we mean something like uh, the heart beating the lungs breathing oh, actually, yeah. the lungs breathing is a better one because we have some control over that when we deliberate but if we just yeah. leave it alone it's yeah. habitual well, that we breathe in and well, out Scotus would say really the intellect, for example, is a lot like our breathing, right? So our breathing right. just continues naturally, but our will can influence our breathing. But it's really our will choosing not to breathe, which then our breathing, our faculty of breathing then follows that command. So Scotus could say we could will to stop thinking about something, at which point our will is now given a command to our intellect, which our intellect follows. But well, it's the for... will itself that's choosing then. So we'd say the intellect is like a power like that, like breathing or something like that, um, versus 
And he would say that's within the general category then of non-rational or natural powers. So it's within the same category of our heart beating, of the sun shining, all of these things simply continue necessarily. Um, or if they're stopped, it's because of some impediment, such as the will in the case of breathing. Um, if we had like a sword stabbed through us, our heart, our heart might stop beating because there was an impediment that forced it to stop. But there wouldn't be something does that make sense because there wouldn't be yeah. something that um chooses versus the will there doesn't have to be any impediment to make it stop it can simply choose between alternatives okay so i'm still not understanding why that would be against the thomistic view yeah. i guess now i'm wondering maybe if i'm misunderstanding the thomistic views as i understood the thomistic view before we started this discussion yeah. it seemed to be that the will simply followed what it was presented by the intellect no, 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 no. Uh, under the Thomistic view, there's the need for a uh, a dual sort of um, it, You're saying it's, it's the appetite that chooses. But as I understand appetites, right, that's simply a desire for something. It doesn't seem like the appetite itself can be the actual choosing between things. No, actually, isn't a well, passion? No, isn't that more of a passion? I believe an appetite is uh, more... Um, actually, you know, never mind. I don't have enough... I, yeah. I, I I think I might just be misunderstanding these terms. Yeah, yeah, with, yeah, with, the, with the appetitive, the yeah, yeah, with the appetitive faculty, that is the um, that that would be the direction of the soul towards the good, just as the the intellect is 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 towards the the true. So in in choosing, there is there's a need to verify that it's true and then to desire it as good. But this Scotus could say, right, if there that um, the the wheel he says moves itself, and so if there was, for example, right, a piece of cake in front of us, we ultimately have the choice to choose whether to eat that piece of cake or not. Would you Would you yes. agree with that? Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, and you would say that it's ultimately the will then that's choosing whether or not to. Yes. Okay. So yes, maybe I was misunderstanding the Thomas view, at least it's been presented to me by quite a number of Thomists who seem to phrase it in such a way that it feels like there's almost no free will because they talk about how the intellect is simply moved, by, or the will is simply moved by the intellect. <laughs> Thanks. Well, the, but the, it could the just will, be the case here I'm misunderstanding the Thomas position. I mean, it seems more like Thomas is just describing the nature of the will by... Um, by the concurrence, the concurrence of different uh, being presented with different things by different faculties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, like for example, the uh, the will is presented by the intellect with something which the the intellect judges it true, and then the the will assents to it uh, in in mm -hmm. the aptitude faculty as as being something desirable. Mm -hmm. So that that that's at least how I read Thomas. But again, I'm a paleo Thomist. So I just, <laughs> I literally just read Thomas and then maybe some Lagrange maybe, here and there. Maybe it is the later commentators upon Thomas then that are more they, leaning they, towards this interpretation of Thomas. Honestly, the later commentators on Thomas have, uh, at least according to, to what I've heard, screwed up quite a few things. So okay. I wouldn't be surprised. Because, yeah, for example, Banya's, for example, with his physical pre-motion of God basically influencing the intellect in such a way that it's simply going to move the will in that way to lead to a certain result. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. 
Yeah, so that would seem then, right, that the will isn't moving itself, freely choosing between alternatives, but rather that it's the intellect moving the will to its end. And that as the sole cause of... Explain how you're reading Banyas again. Yeah, and I haven't read Banyas directly from secondary sources I'm controlling on Banyas. Oh, are you you studying something like O'Neill's work here? It's more probably from just engagement with Thomas of reading the Scotus literature and then talking with Thomas about this. Mm. So maybe it is more from other Thomas that I'm drawing this from who've misunderstood Thomas here. But it does seem that from what I understand about it, that it's right, the intellect is moving the will. But Scotus says that the will moves itself. The will is the cause of its own motion. Hmm. Yeah, I'm... It's... Yeah, I mean, I also have a bit of experience from uh, Thomas as well, and my general impression is Mm -hmm. something along these lines. Basically, the intellectual faculty is what's judged in man. So the intellectual faculty comes to its own conclusions, it reasons about things, it can reason properly or improperly, Mm -hmm. and if it reasons improperly, then uh, that's something in which it's judged or condemned for. Uh, Whereas if it judges properly, it's rewarded. But of course, the intellect, given the fall, is unable to do that and that's what requires some something akin to uh grace in order in order to do that and mm-hmm. then you kind of have a distinction drawn between uh necessary and sufficient grace necessary grace being grace which is necessary to move uh, the the intellect mm-hmm. towards something but um because it's only there necessary necessarily um the ability for the intellect to uh, reach the proper conclusion is there has what's has is there virtually so it's possible but it's not something that any will will ever can actualize unless uh, god also moves the intellect with uh, some sort of sufficient grace and at which point the sufficient grace uh, because that is something god bestows out of his mercy um, god is not obliged to give it so anything that uh, doesn't receive it uh, God isn't condemned for it. Uh, God doesn't isn't responsible for that evil. Whereas anything that is given, um, that that sufficient grace, uh, could only have come to that conclusion because it was given that grace, and that's why it's moved towards uh, it's moved towards the good. Or mm-hmm. the, like that's just my general impression. Like, uh, is that a fair yeah. analysis? Yeah. Maybe the, my first thought that came up with this is that right it seems like for scotus the will simply reason the intellect rather simply reasons as well as it can presents that to the will and then at that point it's the will that chooses yes so it's um the intellect right isn't making choices about how well it's reasoning it simply reasons as best it can and presents that to the will so for scotus for example since the will can move itself the will could choose something contrary to what the intellect presents. Yes. And that actually happens quite frequently, Scotus. When we're committing a sin, we're actually choosing something contrary to what the intellect has presented. Yes, 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 exactly. You would agree? Exactly. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Because that would be okay. the, interesting. The, the dissidence between our various faculties of the soul would be really the definition of, of, of sin. I actually, internally speaking, according to internal principles. I, I wanted to ask, so there's a, a very common, in the same book I said earlier, in the first book of Al-Kafi, there's a very common like theme that's repeated of where the idea of implementing intellect 
uh, like implementing intellect in of itself is good. And that if you come to wrong, if like, let's say, for example, if you conclude an, an incorrect thing, right, or you do a sin or something like that, you haven't even implemented your intellect at all. And I was curious what your thoughts on that are. That if even that if it's even possible to improperly uh, improperly use your intellect. Or if that, even, uh, or if that uh, in yes. a sense, is considered an application of intellect. Uh, yes. I would say you can insofar as your will would be influencing your intellect to act incorrectly, right? So maybe you have, you've now learned, maybe for, let me give an example, right? You now have learned that your math skills aren't good enough and you need to improve your math skills. But you now choose in your will to will contrary to that and purposely not improve your intellect and not learn better math, for example. Is that what you're getting at or...? Yeah, so like for example, uh, there's, there's a lot of narrations that will say, for example, that like one who applies his in, one who actually applies his intellect will will result in the true religion, right? Yeah. Regardless of so, and the, and the idea here is that if if uh, if you are on the false religion, for example, you haven't actually applied your intellect properly, or yeah. that you haven't even you're not actually using your faculty of intellect the way it's designed to at least. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but I think we're having a scholarly discussion, so I just uh, <laughs> yeah. got my kaffee on and everything. Yeah. Hold up, hold yeah. up, hold up. One second. I will think to you, but give me a second. Yeah. Right yes, uh, Scotus ends up saying here essentially that it would be our will, which is choosing now to influence our intellect, to apply our intellect. But our intellect simply moves in just the same way any sort of other natural faculty moves, simply that is probably under a much greater degree to the influence of the will than those. Right? So just like maybe we might choose to eat, right? So if we want to choose to eat healthy, we wouldn't say that the morally praiseworthy part of that and the, the important part of that is the actual movement of our hands and the actual eating. It's our will influencing our body to eat the salad, right? It's not our actual eating of the salad i mean it is the eating of the salad but it's because mm -hmm. the will has commanded your body to do that if that makes sense and i would say yeah. that's in the same sense as the intellect applying itself to study the intellect applies itself to the study because the will has willed that the intellect apply itself to the study i'll be back one second but yes I yeah Sorry, I started no, the uh, So maybe we can move on to something that is a more clear disagreement about whether then the will or the intellect is greater than. Because it seems to me then that if the mind, if the will is what's choosing all of this, it's fundamentally the will then that is what is morally praiseworthy or blameworthy. And that it is what perfects man is our will choosing to do, to do virtue, choosing to believe, choosing to have charity. I mean, charity is the highest virtue and charity is the perfection of the will so that the will will choose to love others for their own sake and not simply as a means for our own sake. And so it seems that the will then is the highest faculty within man. Well, I... Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm, other... I'm, I'm, so here's kind of one of my pauses. From what I understand, mm -hmm. the the um, the will and the intellect; these are two. They're formally distinct in the soul. Yeah. That is, they're not really separable from one another. Oh yeah, of course, uh, yeah. So I'm kind of curious as to whether or not we can say that when uh, really the intellect and the uh, will are, if they if they are formally distinct, then wouldn't it also be the case that um, the praise that one gets is shared by the other, like, or inseparable from the other. 
Yeah, I would say in some sense yeah. that there's right in St. Bonaventure's work, um, the itinerarium, it's mm. the itinerarium in mentis deum, the ascent of the mind into God. And um is it Bonaventure then talks about here how he talks about how the three faculties of the mind, memory, intellect, and will, and a lot of the other scholastics, memory simply gets folded into intellect there. Mm -hmm. The memory, intellect, and will all get taken up into God in this ascent to God. Mm -hmm. But it's fundamentally at this level of the will, that the will is the perfection in man. Because it's mm -hmm. where, first of all, the three, the other two faculties come to rest, right? As Bonaventure talks about how the memory brings forth the intellect and the memory and the intellect together bring forth the will. But it's in the will fundamentally that we're willing then the good. And so it's where then we reach our perfection. And man is also perfected through the will, through charity. Okay, I see that. Yeah. And so you would say then, right, the other two, the mem the intellect and the memory, they come to share in the goodness of the will. That it's the renew and also the body as well, right? The body also participates within divine glory. We wouldn't say then the body is equal to or greater than this, uh, the soul. And right. also just as lower, as Christian was pointing out earlier, that lower faculties are at the service of higher faculties, that it seems to then follow from that that um <laughs> i'm sorry this is just a great this is a great comedy moment this is a great bit yeah <laughs> but um yeah no yeah it, it seems to follow from that then that the um intellect what's i gonna say yeah that if the intellect is at the service of the will that the will is fundamentally this highest principle are you asking that to me? Yeah, I was bringing up all sort of all these different points. And what, what do you think? Well, I, I could just I could just flip that on its head and say because the will is, um, because in in order for the uh, the choice of the will to exist, there must be the apprehension of the intellect. Therefore, the will is dependent on the intellect. So. Well, the will is dependent in a sense on the intellect. That's true, but. Will intellect exist for the sake of the will? That would need to be proven. Well, what, the reason we know anything, right, is the intellect presents things to the will, so mm. the will can choose between alternatives. I would deny that that's the, the end of the intellect. Yeah. Well, I would also say then, why is charity the highest theological virtue and the only one that remains in heaven if charity is the perfection of the will? Because uh, when it comes to both faith and hope, those are things not present, but in heaven. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, that and that and that's a bit disingenuous because when you think of the the virtues, the virtues are infused habits in the will. So asking, mm -hmm. saying, uh, okay. Well, these are because both faith and will, hope are also of the will and those disappear. Therefore the will is inferior because two out of three of the virtues, like you could, but, this, well, this faith, argument isn't necessarily. I would say faith, what faith about, what about the, primarily, yeah, sorry. What, oh, I, I was going to bring up what about uh, Christ? Because even Thomas acknowledges that Christ doesn't have the virtues of faith and hope. He doesn't require those being mm -hmm. God. But he does have, of course, the virtue of charity. Yeah, That's just I, ingrained in who he is. Uh, well, what I is what is faith? Well, uh, faith is the faith. intellect assenting to the teachings of the church. Oh, okay, I believe it's, if it's I assenting believe faith, to something, then it's an act of the will. 
because where just, where is because faith isn't in, isn't infused into the intellect. Mm, faith is a virtue which is well, infused into the into the will. Well, mm. faith takes an it's act, habit. but it's fundamentally our mind coming to know the truths of the faith and coming to know them as true. So it is our real. There has to be an act of the will in order for us to have faith that is true, in order for us to receive that. But it fundamentally then is located in our intellect, so that our intellect can know what the church teaches hope is sort of somewhat in both so uh, we can maybe set hope aside for a second because that one's more that's probably more complicated one but then in charity charity is fundamentally the perfection of the will because mm -hmm. love is the choice of what we are going to love what good we are going to love most that is a choice of the will and the will comes to love the good of the other person or god for their own sake and not for your own sake so a thought is occurring to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think wouldn't all these virtues require some exercise of both? So, for example, yeah, I think uh, so. Yeah, yeah. Charity is willing the good of the other as other, but in order to will the good for the other, you have to comprehend what the other yeah. is. Yeah, I was gonna say for it to actually be a true, you know, for something to be defined as charity, you have to intellectually process that what you're. You have to have intention. Yeah. Right? you have to have intellectual yeah. Uh, yeah. So, rationality um, of comprehension. Yeah. I would say yeah. when it comes to when it comes to where a, when it comes to where virtue is infused, a virtue is, infu is a habit which is infused into 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 the will. I, I I deny what you're saying about the the nature of of faith. Okay. That's why I don't think what, that the argument follows. This is what Bonaventure argues in the itinerarium in chapter four, is that faith primarily relates to the intellect and hope to the memory and charity to the will. Let me see is, the question on. to sum up. I, I, I would definitely need to read Bonaventure on that one before making... Before. Yeah, hold on. Yeah. And um, St. John of the Cross makes the same argument mm -hmm. as the three different facts of how the... Um, different theological virtues aid the ascent of the soul into God for St. John of the Cross as well. And I, th I think this is in Augustine as well, these specific three. Hmm. Here we go. Um, trying to see if I can find it here in... Putting a coupe on when you have long hair is difficult. Yeah, that is true. This is... This is why I just don't like Koofies. Yep. <laughs> I would say that all of them, right, play a role in all the faculties mm. of the mind, but it's which one they're primarily located in, if that I makes see. sense. So, okay, okay. so charity is primarily was... an act of the will. Faith yeah. is primarily an act of the intellect. The intellect and, and okay. hope the memory. Yeah, but, but I would also say the hope relates very much to the will as well, as Scotus points out, because hope is really basically the perfection of the affectio commode within the will as well. But I would I would explain the deficiency, um, since I would I would affirm that uh, the object is residing primarily in the intellect. Uh, the fact that faith and hope are inferior virtues, which will which will necessarily mm -hmm. go away, is the fact that we we now live. It, it's in our current economy. And the fact that faith and hope have its as its objects things which are not so you, seen. So you don't think our ultimate end is to love God then? It's a good question. Because it seems that for I, I, Thomas I, the ultimate end is to know God, not to love God. Versus for Scotus, the ultimate end is to love God, which is an act of the will. Mm. That would be correct. I wanted to. I want to ask. Do you think the intentions are um, contend? Are not the intentions? The virtues are contingent upon intention. 
So for something to be truly have faith, it has to have it's contingent upon an attention of being faithful. But yes, this, in the this, sense that we have to initiate it, but it is a habit within the souls. We don't every second have to be willing to have it in order to have that virtue at that moment, if that makes yeah. sense. When it, when it comes and, to the when it comes to the the nature of charity in it in our beatific life, um, mm -hmm. the life of the blessed. Our, our charity is going to be dependent on and come from uh, the apprehension of knowledge because really the the distinct as you, the distinction between the intellect and the will is one of um, acts and objects mm -hmm. so I, I think I, I think there's too much of an arbitrary distinction made between faith open charity if, if you're if you're getting what I'm saying would you say that they, between the say that acts they, of faith, open charity. I, I would think you say that they all, and like for example, that charity necessarily is contingent upon a possession of faith and hope. No, no, because no. Uh, we, Christ, we, no, because Christ we just himself. Have a, yeah, we just have in the chat here. Throw yeah, up yeah. the quote. Throw up the quote from Zero Hour in the chat. We just proved Saint Thomas is a scotist here. With reference to divine things which are superior to the soul. Okay. With reference to divine things which are superior to the soul. In this way, to will is more excellent than to understand. As to God, to will God or to love him is more excellent than to know uh, him. I actually threw this last part of this quote. To love um, God, uh, to, to will God or to love him is more excellent than to know him. I actually quote, there was a quote of a um, St. Thomas-like quote bot on Twitter um, that tweeted this out. And I retweeted it and I said, therefore, the will is greater than the intellect. And you can, if you search that up, you can find my whole long debate with Urban Hannon on Twitter about that. Um, but yeah. his argument was that basically that just because the act of the will is greater than the act of the intellect doesn't mean the will is greater than the intellect. But I don't see how that follows because the faculties are for the sake of some end. So if it seems that the act of willing to love God is greater than the act of knowing God, that the will is greater than the intellect. Mm. This Kofi is slipping off my head slowly. It's so annoying. And it seems this is also what's so beautiful about Christianity is it's a, um, as Godus presents it, is that it's fundamentally about love and our love of God. Mm. Okay, let us... Found the quote. Okay, so let's read the whole quote. And the question yeah. this is asking, let me just go up. You should probably take down the quote from the chat. Oh, yeah, it's covering yeah, me and Alex. Blocking it over. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay. You don't want to miss my is beautiful Is the will face. a higher power than the intellect, or is the opposite true? So. We seem Actually, this would be a good top. question just to read it's in the whole. Scroll up at the top. It seems that the intellect is noble and higher. It seems he affirms the priority of the will here. No, <laughs> this is this is part of the difficulties. So if you read if you read if you read the um, the uh, treatises the uh, questions uh, disputed questions of Thomas, that's what he's going to put for the. Um, oh, for the first in the Summa, the first thing listed is what he disagrees with. <laughs> mm. Oh. Uh, that the intellect is nobler, nobler and higher. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> to the contrary. Okay. To the okay, contrary. Right. There we go. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> you might be right. Oh, no, then there's a reply. Down that. The philosopher says that the intellect <laughs> is the excellent music. things which are in us. Therefore, wait. Is he is he affirming the no, no, supremacy more... of the will right here? I think he did. Oh, I... oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay. We have to read this now. This is. Okay. <laughs> I think we can read the last thing like, first. Okay, a thing can be said to be more eminent than another, either simply or in a certain respect. 
For something to be shown to be simply better than another, the comparison must be made on the basis of what is essential to them and not on the accidentals. Blah, 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 blah. We already know what that means. The perfection mm -hmm. and dignity of the intellect consists in this, that the species of the thing which is understood is the intellect itself, since in this way it actually understands, and from this its whole dignity is seen. The nobility of the will and of its act, however, consists in this, that the soul is directed to some noble thing in the very existence which that thing has of itself. Now it is more perfect, simply and absolutely speaking, to have within oneself the nobility of another thing than to be related to the noble thing outside of oneself. Wah, wah, we thought. Hence, if the will and the intellect are considered absolutely and not with reference to this or that particular thing, they have this order that the intellect is simply more excellent than the will. But he's going to continue to nuance this. But it may happen that to be related in some way to some noble thing is more excellent to have its nobility within oneself. This is the case, for instance, when the nobility of that thing is possessed in a way inferior to that which, is, which the thing has it within itself. But if the nobility of one thing is in another just as nobility or more nobly, than it is in the thing to which it belongs, then without a doubt, that which has the nobility of that thing within itself is nobler than that which is related in any way whatsoever to that noble thing. So remember, simply, the intellect is better than the will, but if in this counterfactual case, the thing outside of oneself is more noble, then the will would be more noble. And he's about to, he's about to drop the bomb here. Now the intellect takes on the forms of... Uh, or things superior to the soul in a way inferior to that which they have in the things themselves. For the intellect receives things after its own fashion, as it is said in the causes. And for the same reason, the forms of things inferior to the soul, such as corporeal things, are more noble in the soul than in the things themselves. So if we're, if we're relating to, if, if we're just considering whether having th something within oneself or whether relating to something outside of oneself, having something within itself is obviously better. But depending on the object, if it has to do with a with a lesser thing, then the um, then it's obviously going to be inferior to have that within oneself. And uh, when we're dealing with a higher thing, to be tending towards that thing is going to be the superior act. The intellect can accordingly be compared to the will in three ways: absolutely and in general, without any reference to this or that particular thing. In this way, the intellect is more excellent than the will, just as it is more per perfect to possess that where there is dignity of a thing and that is merely related to its nobility. Two, with reference to material and sensible things. In this way, the intellect is simply nobler than the will. For example, to know a stone intellectually is nobler than to will it because the form of the stone is in the intellect inasmuch as it known by the intellect in a nobler way than it is in itself as desired by the will. Three, Okay, this is where he drops the bomb. With reference to divine things which are superior to the soul, in this way to will is more excellent than to understand, as to will God or to love him is more excellent than to know him. This is because the divine goodness itself is more perfectly in God himself as he is desired by the will than the participated goodness is in us as known by the intellect. Boom, so it's a lot more nuanced than that. <laughs> but I will okay, concede... Okay, Michael Lofton. I will concede... <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will concede. I will concede that in divine things, mm -hmm. that um, that the we, will we, is superior. Because we, 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 need, we, we need to go re, um, rephrase some of the stuff then in the Summa on the article in Beatitude we read earlier. Because really, the fundamental, most important thing is our love of God, not our our knowing of God. 
Okay. Uh, we're gonna loop back. Are we gonna loop right back around to the material pleasure? No. We're gonna go yeah. right back around to the material pleasure. Yeah, but 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 but, but, but um uh, but the beatific vision would still be necessary in Yeah, in to know case. God. You, we, of course we have to know God to love him. Yeah, I would agree with yeah. that. It's not I, I'm objecting a, to the beatific vision. I'm just saying that the ultimate good of the beatific vision is our love of God more so than our not our simple knowledge of God. So, so, uh, so, Biz, uh, so, uh, no. just out of curiosity, uh, you know more about Palamatism than I would. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do the Palamites have a notion of the beatific vision? Because from what I've heard, uh, many some some will claim that you don't even in the afterlife experience god in the beatific vision but the beatific vision is something akin to experiencing god fully within his energies so we never see the essence yeah but only the energies only yeah. the energies even it, in heaven i think yeah. they would say that the energies though are god manifesting himself in such a way as we can understand um and that they are still god they wouldn't say the energies are something external to god but that they are god as i understand palamas yeah I see. Yeah. So they're so they're not like a via media. They no, are. That's what. No, uh, that's what. So that's for example. That's how. They, that's how they understand. Um. Mm. Uh, 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 Thomas Hopkins was in, in his uh, in his book on orthodoxy mm -hmm. in his four part part book on the aspect on theology when he's talking about the essence energy distinction. He's this is explicitly how they understand. You know, the classic God is love, is that the energies are in, in are God in of themselves. So it's I still see. in a sense the beatific vision that you're experiencing God, right? You know. But it's not to the essence; it's to the energy. Yeah, yeah. This Sounds is like a actually why. Cope. Yeah, no. This is actually why I'm thinking a lot of uh, Loskiites are very uh, go farther than what Palamas intended because I, I, think I think even so. like I think he even has a doctrine of divine simplicity because uh, from There's what my brother. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so there's a book I picked up recently from Zlib on the, the good store Zlib, um, nice. which is uh, a <laughs> Tolefson's book. It's called something like participation in late antiquity and early Christianity, where he surveys this topic of participation in divine activity, first in some pagan sources, then in St. Basil. And then he focuses on three different church fathers and looks at a few different aspects of um, Gregory of Nyssa, Dionysius, and Maximus. And then he goes in the last chapter and compares them to Palamas. And he actually argues that it's probably something closer to a virtual distinction Palamas has than what we would call like a real distinction. But at the same time, he does point out some differences with Thomas. I think that there is actually some similarity here possibly with scotus in the sense that they're both articulating a positive conception of divine infinity of divine infinity not merely as apophatic but divine infinity as god infinitely transcending all things and so that there could be a sense in which then there could be energies that are fully god but are in some way manifesting himself in a limited sense if that makes sense no 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 that does and uh out of curiosity do you guys in shia islam have a notion of the beatific vision um so there's a, a very i mean um I'm, I'm not too like studied on it but there's a very common mm. uh, aspect of like the um the light of god right mm. the nerd of god which is i would say is the most comparable thing um, um yeah 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 but i don't know if uh i don't know if we understand that to be created or uncreated so i can't comment on any more than that fair enough yeah. it could be possible that's a uh, it's a created uh thing but it could be possible that's uncreated too but that, that's everybody Everybody, I'm sorry to end the fun, but it is one o'clock in the morning. If, uh, <laughs> if you guys want to continue on here, I don't care. But um, I, I should probably hop off. I have to get up. Yeah, early. 
I have yeah. um, right here is I'm not going to read it now. I guess we could if you want to do something later, Byzantine Scotus, we can. But this is a specific question, actually. Um, let's see what it specifically is. Specific question asking in the in this commentary on the sentences, uh, whether beatitude consists more in things belonging to the will than in things belonging to the intellect. So I think that'd be an interesting thing to read yeah, over together be. and talk about. So we could do that later, but it is one o'clock in the morning. All so right, yeah, let's continue this another like time. At least another hour. How yeah. long was how long was the the nuke stream? The last stream? That it was, was like two hours. hours. Oh, so, Ivan's here. Hey. Hey. Uh, hey. Hi. Hi. So that's like what five hours today? Then uh, four, like three hours. Or so eight hours. So ten hours. I spent ten hours with Christian over the past seventy two. <laughs> <So, laughs> okay. Sorry, I have to go, but um, thank you everybody for. For be here, being here, even Ivan, for your last like two minutes being here. Nice work, nice work. Everybody watching, uh, make sure you like that subscribe button on mine. <laughs> go to Byzantine Scotus. Go to John Fisher 2.0. Go, go to everybody. Make sure you smash their subscribe button. Um, and then also, uh, what's also important, you get a militant Thomist slash radical Numenite mug. And uh, follow me on Twitter at Militant Thomist and patreon.com slash Militant Thomist. I think that's about it. Any final words, everybody? Uh, I don't have you. Yes, thanks for having us, Hunter. Thank you for uh, <laughs> yeah. another Thank massive you. three hours. Your- <laughs> <laughs> yep. Thank you all. all right. I appreciate every single one yeah. of you, especially you all that joined the stream, the like 10 different people that have been on my streams. <laughs> uh, thank you guys. This was and... a good discussion of phase of sodomite poems. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Poems. yeah, yeah thank yeah. you, it's everybody. And God bless. God bless.